In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm your host, Tom Sidlachik, and today for our 50th episode, we discuss the world's greatest detective, Sherlock Holmes. We read one novel, three short stories, and played Sherlock Holmes, the consulting detective. Joining me for the discussion today are Hobbybox, Joe Burns. hey And the amazing, awe-inspiring, incomparable Mrs. O.I.O., Phoenix Sidlachik. Hello. Welcome to the show, guys. Burns, you've been on 17 straight shows, so it feels like what's new with you, my friend? Um, I just finished the moving step of moving, and now I'm on to the buying tons of stuff I didn't have and living out of boxes step of moving. Well, that sounds invigorating. For those of us who haven't moved in a while, what is the highlight of living out of a box in 2022? <laughs> I, don't, I really don't think there's a highlight. Um, like, throwing stuff away is kind of nice, um, and I'm going to take a bunch of stuff to Goodwill here shortly, so that'll be good to get rid of uh, a bunch of clothes that no longer fit or that I just don't like, and so... Now, do you want to take them to Goodwill, or do you want to put them in mystery bags for the Patreon party? <laughs> I mean, I can do that, too, if that's what you want. Yeah, or maybe we'll just give Pat a big old bag of clothes and hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, he might buy them, you know, Yeah, if he comes down here and they go on a shopping trip. That's true. That's <laughs> true. It, yeah, it's true. Although, I don't think they'd really fit him. These well, are get... like double XL shirts from when I was still much larger. And you guys have like the exact same sense of style, too. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Patrick, come get your clothes from Joey. <laughs> Phoenix, this is your third show this year. We've covered the live-action Cowboy Bebop, the yes. Batman, and now your favorite character, Sherlock Holmes. Yes. It's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. It's wild. And speaking of crazy and wild, can you believe we've hit 50 episodes? No, not really. It's gone by fast. And... 2019, we started doing monthly shows. Yes. And now we are at episode 50. It's pretty... Pretty it crazy. crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> yeah, since we started this podcast, we bought a house. We made life twice. Twice. We've uh, surgically sealed off the gates to continue making life. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. Burns, 50 episodes. This is number 50. How many shows do you think you've done up to this point? Um, just main show, just not counting show. Yeah, New not Game counting Plus. The extra stuff. That, that really ups the numbers. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> uh, so out of the main show, I think I've probably done something like 17. 17. I nailed it? <laughs> no, 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 you didn't. <laughs> Honey, do you remember the number? Do you want to guess? I thought it was like 23. <laughs> Keep going. Keep really? climbing. 26 episodes, Burns, okay. out of the first... 49 episodes, you did 26. You came on board in 2019. I was going to say, because, yeah, I I wasn't on the first, what, seven or eight? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I think it was March of 2019 was your first show. Yep. Uh, um, I think you were still living in Texas yeah. when he started, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, then you came back and made you talk about your testicles in your first episode, <laughs> and we've just been off to the races <laughs> since much, then. I guess. <laughs> Good times. I'm, I'm malleable, just like my ball sack, apparently. <laughs> Well, malleable, doesn't that mean like you can pound it in any shape? Like you were much more like stretchy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I mean, 
There's some pounding in that too, I guess. I don't know. It's like kneading dough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe this is just my memory, like playing tricks on me. But you did stretch it out like a pizza dough. Yeah. Oh, there's a cat was, on me. Yeah. It was. Uh, yeah. It was something else. <laughs> I've never tried it again, and I don't think I'll ever have to. <laughs> well, hopefully, they never reboot waiting. Yes. <laughs> We would like to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Check out their website at premierhealthmn.com. That's premierhealthmn.com. You can also follow us all on social. Email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. That is overratedpod at gmail.com. Follow Feeny at phoenixsidlogicoio on Instagram. Follow Burns at Burns on Twitter and twitch.tv slash Burns. You can find me at TomSidLogicOIO on Twitter and Instagram, and follow the show at Facebook.com slash OIO. We hope you'll also support the show at, at Patreon.com slash OIO. It's easy. You just go to Patreon, you set your pledge into your credit card info, and you're all set. What do you get for your support for Outside is Overrated? Well, first, we throw a Patreon appreciation party every summer. Joe, you talked about it a little bit last month, but we, we do a good party, right? It's a I, good time. We I work really so. hard on it. I try. It stresses the <laughs> of us. It does stress the heck of us. Especially with little two kids trying to keep occupied. Yeah, although my favorite memory, memory from the Patreon party was the first one. Daisy was uh, a year old, or was she? She well, she was over a year old because she could talk. Yeah. But at the end of the party, we're not the, the end of the party for her. At bedtime, she came out on the deck and she waved everyone and said goodbye, friends. Love you. I remember <laughs> that. Yeah. I love you, friends. Like she said it. She loved everyone and. You know, I'll carry that sentiment forward. I love all of my supporters on Patreon. <laughs> yeah, Tom shows his love by like needling you incessantly. If he doesn't needle you incessantly, you then know I don't he care. Love you. That's yep. true. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, also, with that money that we get from uh, supporters on Patreon, we do a big giveaway item at the party. Last year we did a PS5. This year, nothing so grand planned as a PS5, although it's no slouch if we do what we're talking about uh but a big giveaway party and uh a grand prize at the party and every patreon gets a giveaway item at the party this year it's coffee cups yes awesome yeah they look really sharp um and if you're curious where that money goes most of it goes to advertising we spend three dollars a day on google adwords that's about a thousand dollars a year and we'd like to go higher to gain more exposure for oil there's also media consumed for the show so that the co-hosts like joy don't have to spend their own money um i believe that's appreciated yeah no definitely yeah although most of the time like a lot of the time i've already owned the things that we're going to talk about so <laughs> yeah i think i made you buy dragon's dogma didn't i uh yes i think so but i think it was like i got it on sale because i knew far enough ahead of, ahead of time so yeah it, it hasn't it's not like it's put me out very much at all. Yeah, well, you know, you've done half the shows and you keep coming back, so... Yeah. <laughs> Something must be working. Hooray for Burns. If you enjoy Outside is Overrated, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash OIO. Contributions start at just $2 a month. Here we go. Sherlock Holmes. Feeney, you ready for this? I hope so. <laughs> we start with the written works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. A Study in Scarlet was the first Sherlock Holmes story published in the Beaton's Christmas Annual in 1887. Over the next 40 years, Doyle's went on to write three more novels and 56 short stories about the detective and his faithful companion, Watson. Burns, you started your career eight or so years ago. <laughs> yes, thank you. You make me sound a lot younger than I am. You started your career as an English teacher, but you had never really read Sherlock Holmes. How was it experiencing this character for the first time? Uh, 
it was actually pretty fun to read it for the first time. Now, granted, I'm glad I, it wasn't horrible. No, no, it wasn't at all. Um, and granted, I've heard of Sherlock before, and but it was interesting to actually read the novel. I've also seen, I think, the first two seasons of the British version with Benedict Cumberbatch that we'll probably talk about at some point. Oh, um, you know it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting to read the novel and short stories. Um, I, I've been kind of wanting to at some point, um, but it's just one of those things that's always been on the back burner and having like that little push to do it uh, was helpful. And I'd also say like the biggest like takeaway I have from it is for being written in like the late 1880s and or late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, the language was actually quite approachable for a modern American reader, um, which was surprising to me. Cause... Yeah, it didn't strike me as old Englishly no. at, at all. I think the last time we were on with Casey, maybe it was Trek to Yomi, but like I talked about not being able to memorize a sonnet and how like Shakespearean English is just mm-hmm. so difficult for me. And anything like old Englishly, like I've tried reading A Tale of Two Cities, and like after the first chapter, I'm like, nope, can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, reading the story, it's amazing. You know, thinking about it and reading the history of detective stories. Um, Dickens was, I think, still writing at this point, and Edgar Allan Poe, you know, had written, I think, a couple of years before Doyle wrote um, Sherlock. So I've tried reading them. I have a little harder time slogging through them versus this. And it surprised me when I first picked up Doyle. It's like, oh, I can understand what he's saying, you know. Yeah, it still reads really smoothly. I originally read these stories, and I loved reading through them when Phoenix and I first started dating. It was sometime after 2011. I knew you were a huge Sherlock fan, so of course I started doing my homework and putting in the work so that I could eventually make Anchor Babies so you couldn't run away from me. (laughs) (laughs) It worked. (laughs) Hooray! It was a lot of fun going back to these stories. I remembered the basic premise of each, but it was really fun to know what was happening and like watch for all the signs and all the indications along the way. Yeah, it helped me to reread them because you know you having me do the top five so i got to be able to when i read the stories pinpoint a little bit more on the personality of sherlock versus if you're first reading it you're kind of reading the story so well speaking of the personality of sherlock feeney sherlock holmes is your favorite character your favorite character in all the world like this is well i still have that debate because you know, you asked me that before, and I almost put Archie at the first one, so. Oh, I thought that Sherlock was number one with uh, with no doubt. Well, it's still between Archie and Sherlock. Archie from Nerewolf Rex Stout series, so. How close is it? Like, are they neck and neck? They're neck and neck. I mean, I thoroughly enjoy the Rex Stout series um, of Nerewolf, and, but, yeah, they're kind of neck and neck as far as characters. For a second, I thought it was Archie, like Archie and Jughead. No. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a comparison. <laughs> no, no. Archie Goodwin from uh, Nero Wolf. He's an interesting character. So. And sharing a personal anecdote, like if we had had a boy, what would our boy's name have been the It would have been time? Archie. Archie Sherlock Sidlachik. <laughs> oh, no, gosh. What? I can't remember what our theoretical middle name was. What was it? I can't remember either. Okay, well, at least I'm not the horn. It most certainly was not Patrick. (laughs) Coming back to Sherlock, Feeney, what is it that connects you to this character? Why do you have such an affinity for the world's greatest detective? Maybe it was Dagan. Archie Dagan? I can't remember. Um... No, my whole love of Sherlock started, actually, it's a... Oh, I know what it was. It was Thomas, for Christ's sakes. It was going to be Archie Thomas and Logic. That's right, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> this has been Theoretical Baby Names with Tom and Phoenix. <laughs> well, you know, when you don't know the gender ahead of time, you got to be prepared for yeah, it. Definitely. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Well, anyways, um, I guess 
I was born at home, delivered by my dad, and my mom, um, you know, I was delivered, and they looked at the clock, and they said, oh, we can make it in time to watch Sherlock Holmes. So they cleaned up everything, and they got us all in front of the TV to watch Sherlock Holmes. So basically, I've been... Um, a fan literally your entire life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Since birth. <laughs> since birth. So, so yeah, no, it's um, an interesting little tidbit to my history of my living. But, you know, he's also an interesting character because he's sort of the first true detective. And reading the history book about detectives, um, you know, the author tries to explain that you have people say maybe the uh, God was a detective when he asks Adam the questions he's asking, but he says, asking a question doesn't truly make you a detective. And, you know, other people bring out points of Dickens and other work. And he's said the people like Dickens and I can't remember the two other authors, they viewed the police as idiots. And those detectives were always bumbling and caught the wrong person. And so he feels Poe was the start of it, but really Doyle was actually the first one to put it on paper, make this person able to think logically and hear stories and put together the pieces that needed to be put together to figure out the true criminal. And you still have the, you know, the idiotic um, inspector in the background for that time because mm -hmm. people were still not as trusting of the police, according to this author. They were still trying to trust the police force but yeah it's just kind of interesting his explaining that Sherlock was in ways in his mind really the first true detective and it is fascinating to read the stories and have someone who seems almost superhero-ish in the at that time period be able to view something and put together you know what is the true essence of this character or what really happened so well i think it's i think it's interesting that comparison too because i think people trust fictional police now more than the actual police yeah i think they do too in real life. well and the so... interesting thing i read was that um the police back uh, when they started moving from small towns off the farms into the industrial age they didn't really have a police force and in the small towns they would just have the one constable walking mm -hmm. around and they trusted him but once they're in the big cities the police didn't know who to hire, so they hired thieves <laughs> that could catch other thieves. But then again, those thieves got paid off by rich people, to, you know. So it was <laughs> so people didn't have a lot of trust in the police force at that time. So the writing he was explaining, like Dickens and stuff, was showing what people thought at that time of the police force. And so, so I think it just it's amazing to read them because Doyle was able to create something so unique at that time period and i think it did help that he had a teacher bell dr bell who he based the character off because i guess dr bell would deduct people when he looked at them and figure out what they've been doing by just looking at their clothes and you he used it to help treat his patients and he'd he infer did. what was going on yeah under the surface yeah. one of the things that i think is interesting about sherlock the character sherlock holmes and the author sir arthur conan doyle is that they're at such odds with each other because sherlock figures everything out and there's a very logical reason for every single step in the process and once you see it it's like oh okay that makes a lot of sense sir arthur conan doyle apparently he was a spiritualist and like he believed in the supernatural he believed in otherworldly influences there was an anecdote that i read online about him where 
uh, Harry Houdini performed a trick in front of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and he did it in like a private setting. And like he explained, this is just an illusion. And like he explained how he did it, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle believed that it was magic, <laughs> and he refused to believe that it was just an illusion. Like, so it's just interesting that he created this character that was like the polar opposite of himself, and then he inserted himself in the story as John Watson and came along for the ride. I just think the whole thing is fascinating. It is, yeah. And speaking of Watson, I think Sherlock Holmes as a character is fine. Like, I have nothing against Sherlock. I like him. I think he's an interesting and a very interesting character. But for me, these stories are made by Watson. I love Watson. Watson is one of my favorite characters. He's a stalwart companion. He's faithful. He's helpful. He's not shy about going into dangerous situations. And I just, for some reason, I just love having watson tell the story and show his experience of like watching his friend and his companion solve these mysteries i love watson interesting like i i enjoy both the characters i would say um relatively equally obviously sherlock is the star of them all because i mean they're named after him and blah 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 blah. and he's one million billion times less disappointing than frodo baggins I would say so, yes. Um, if Sherlock gets that ring to Mount Doom, like he is going to chuck it in the volcano and then he's going to go home with Watson. I would think Sherlock <laughs> would find a way to like take care of the situation without this long meandering trek <laughs> through three books. Yeah, he would just be sitting there at the uh, Elven console go, no, there's an easier way of yeah, doing this. Exactly. Gandalf, get your eagles. Let's fly this ring over the... <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. The Lord of the Rings condensed. Yes. We don't have to do that show now. Oh, we still have to do that show. Phoenix, you love the mystery genre in general. I'm fond of it, but I'm far less exposed to it. Burns, what is your level of interest and experience with the genre? So, like, mystery have has always been something that I've enjoyed when I've read stories in the genre or, or seen, like, movies and, and things like that, but... It hasn't ever really been something that I've, like, sought out before. Like, I haven't been like, okay, this is the mystery novel I need to read or or anything like that. Part of it's maybe, part of it's kind of, like, not knowing where to start, mm-hmm. you know, sort of thing. Um, so I'm honestly not sure if I've actually read a true mystery novel before reading um, the one that we did for this. And so, um, other than that, like, I do kind of enjoy, like, mystery in movies, like, I really liked more recently, like, Knives Out. Granted, that's, I don't know, maybe not true mystery. It's I kind haven't of a watched whodunit. it yet, no. Yeah. So. Um, and then I also grew up loving the movie adaptation of Clue. Yes. Um, though that's <laughs> <Good one. laughs> not really, that's more of, like, a farce than anything. But um, Still a good movie, though. Yeah. And so uh, it, it's one of those things where I, I've always been interested in it. I think one of the things about these stories that are intriguing to me is... You do, because you have Watson, who's kind of this blank slate, and he just sort of explains, like, at at times he'll explain, like, oh, well, it looks like this. And you're like, okay, that's what that looks like. And then Sherlock will spin all these things, and you're just like, holy crap. But then, like, you start to try to think about that, and you try to think, like, ahead and figure out what it is. And I don't know if I batted, like, 50-50 or something like that. But um, (laughs) I I think there's a couple of the stories that I read, um, not any of the ones that were for the show but like in between in the in the the short story collection that those were all in uh i I got a couple of them i kind of knew where it was going before it got there um but there was a couple of them where it's just like 
I don't know, had no idea that mm-hmm. that's what the deal was. And I'm sitting there trying to guess. It's like, well, what in the world? Especially, I think, the Speckled Band, which we'll talk about later, I think is the one that's most, like, I just had no idea that that's where it was going. <laughs> oh, interesting. As a kid, I remember that being, like, the story that a lot of people knew. But, um... The story that I carry with me from the furthest point was in high school. We had to read one short story. And it was the one where uh, he's Sherlock Holmes gets a box delivered and it's a trap. And like he opens the box and he gets stuck by a needle and the needle is covered in poison. But uh, it doesn't kill him. And so he has to try to figure out who's trying to kill him with a needle in a box. And I think that was in that was in the show, I believe. Right. And the uh, Cumberbatch show. Yeah, the Cumberbatch show. Yeah, I don't know. It's the, thought... only one that, it's the only one I've seen. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully Cumberbatch eats that needle. <laughs> Feeny, tell us about your love of mysteries. Oh, wow. Um, I guess, you know, Sherlock Holmes being a starting point, but I also grew up on old-time radio, which had a lot of the hard-boiled detectives. Like, they um, did dramatizations of Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. They did Sam and Spade. you love Philip Marlowe. I love Philip Marlowe. But, um... I love the old noir, and it's something I've always loved, and that's why I love Nero um, Wolf, Rex Stout series. Um, but something about having to go around and talk to people, and they it have sounds to- awful, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to piece it out, and you know, other people are up against you and stuff. And I, you know, even today's BBC mysteries, um, you know, Vera, um, Endeavor, a couple to name. They still rely on that old storytelling of trying to figure out who they use some forensics, but they don't use forensics like our American TV shows mm-hmm. use to a fault. I think right. it just it's not a mystery to me. Yeah. I find it just more about the forensics versus it's a science show. Yeah, a science show. Uh, you know, the, where I really enjoy the BBC, they seem to stick with that whole storytelling of trying to figure out who done it type thing. Well, and when you look at it, if you're trying to solve a mystery, that's like the easy button. It's like okay, bloop, 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 punch it, it in the computer. Oh, this is what happened yeah here's the dna he did it well that's the thing you know it's like it the story is not as complex and you know it's just not as diverse as some of the stories i think could be but no i still really thoroughly enjoy the old sort of detective stories and um you know if you want i would try rexed out oh honey you're stealing my thunder (laughs) mystery's never been my go-to genre either similar to burns but i do enjoy it uh, I want to point out that Rex Trout is particularly good. Yep. Also, Dresden is an incredible it mashup is, yeah. of mystery with fantasy. Yeah, that's another reason I love Dresden. You know, Harry Potter, reading what we did read, I enjoy it. But I guess the reason I love Harry Dresden is the mystery aspect to it. You know, so if we read all the way to the end of Harry <clears throat> Potter, it would be interesting to see how much you loved it because Deathly Hallows is one of my favorite books of all time. I I should continue reading through it, but yeah, it's just. Something about the mystery is just my go-to, you know. Which one is Deathly Hallows again? The last one. I thought that each book successively got better and better. See, I thought it peaked at the third one, Prisoner of Azkaban. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Well, you're wrong. Um, Probably. (laughs) I I appreciate you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We are going to move on to actually talking about some of the stories now. We'll start with Study in Scarlet. 
Originally published in December 1887, and just a quick note for the dates, I used the online Arthur Conan Doyle Encyclopedia. Uh, I could have done real research and probably found it in a book, but this is the tool that was available to me in my hour of need. You didn't want to go old school and whip out the encyclopedia. We don't have an encyclopedia. Where are we going to find an encyclopedia? Here, I'll just look on the cat. Bear, bear. <laughs> when was Studying Scarlet published? I was just thinking about back in the day when we had to do research yeah. papers. Our kids aren't going to know. No. <laughs> yeah, our kids will never know what an encyclopedia is. No. Nope. They're going to read the Red-Headed League at some point and be like, what's he What's he writing? Why does everything start <laughs> with the letter A? So if you had to modernize that to like the mid-90s, it's like he had to retype in Carta. That's true. How, how annoying would that be? <laughs> be awful. <laughs> and he'd be hunting and pecking too because he doesn't know how to type. Originally published in December 1887, Study in Scarlet, Sherlock is recruited by Scotland Yard to investigate a strange murder. He brings his new roommate, Dr. Watson, along for the investigation because who wouldn't bring someone that they had just met like that day? After well, actually. Sorry. Proceed. It wasn't that day that you brought him. It was recent, though. Okay, you're right. It wasn't that day. Thank you for undermining me. I'm because remember, he now. was studying Sherlock for a while, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it's also, it's one of those things where, like, if, if he was going to allow someone to live with him, he would trust him with a lot of things, my guess is. Yeah. And so that's probably also why he decided that he could come along. Hey, Rumi, you want to come see this dead body with me? <laughs> okay. What I thought was interesting is, and, and, and sorry if I'm ruining everything, like the flow that you were trying to get into, but they talk a lot, don't they talk a lot at the beginning about his limp? Yes. And then it's just like, it's not in anything else after the very Well, the weird that, part that is... I, that I've read anyway. Well, the weird part, it becomes a shoulder at one point. Oh, really? Yeah. It, it doesn't stay consistent as one of the... So it's just like Doyle just couldn't remember yeah. what malady he had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, next thing you know, he's got gout, you know? Yeah. <laughs> There's no post-it notes in the 1800s. <laughs> Dang 3M. They investigate this murder, and after catching their quarry, you get a long backstory on why the murderer killed his victims. In the end, you wind up questioning whether or not the victims deserve their fate. Sherlock and Watson are only in half the story. Some of the key points from the story, Sherlock meets Watson. It's their first interaction and how they come to live together. There are all the threads of the investigation. Inspector Lestrade follows one thread. Gregson follows another thread. And it takes Sherlock to kind of pull all the threads together and see the big picture. There is a healthy dose of non-sequential storytelling. I guess there's a jarring transition more than it is non-sequential storytelling. When they uh, switch into the second half of the book, it's very jarring. Yeah. And... Uh, I want to mention Jefferson Hope. He's ultimately the antagonist in this story, but I thought he was a really fascinating character. Joey, we'll start with you. What were your impressions of Sherlock heading into this first story, and how do they change after the novel? Uh, yeah, I, I was interested in in, in like seeing how he's actually written. Um, you know, I've seen random representations of Sherlock throughout time. I've actually never seen like any of the movies, like especially like the most recent Robert Downey Jr. ones. Oh man, um, you got to watch those movies. And I've heard they're great. And yeah, so they are. It, they're great. They're yeah. on the list. One of these days, I was going to try to watch <laughs> it ahead of time and then just got distracted with moving and everything like that. Yeah. But, uh, so I was intrigued to see exactly how it was written and how that, that, how that matched up with what I had seen previously. Um, it was interesting, like comparing this, like I said, um, to, to much to your guys's chagrin, the main like touch point I had was the Benedict Cumberbatch uh, series, uh, and I think it. The thing that's interesting is that 
and, and maybe this is more of a just discussion about how the world just continues to repeat itself and how at that point that Watson had served in Afghanistan and how that still worked yes, I even know. Well, just as well for when the Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch because Watson did. had fought in Afghanistan. And it's just like, yeah, because we're still fighting wars in Afghanistan, apparently. Yeah, I um, mean, the first, yeah, I mean, they did a clever job and it worked out well for them <laughs> to do yeah. that. So. Are we addressing the Cumberbatch in the room now? No, we're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. But uh, so it, it was really interesting to to see them meet and and to see kind of how the eccentricities of Sherlock Holmes are represented. And uh, I, so I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I also, like you had kind of uh, said, I, I thought that transition into the second half of the story was so jarring because it's just a completely different, and it's we'll, a completely different story. And you're just like, where is this going? And we'll set it up a touch. We are following Sherlock and Watson in England. They solve the mystery. They catch the guy. And then suddenly you open up the next page, you turn the page, and then you're in Utah with a dying man. And you find out that like, he's dragging this little girl around with him. And it's like, what the hell is going on? The first time I remember very distinctly, the first time I read this, I'm like, is this a misprinted book? Like, did they randomly put another story inside of this? And then, like, I kept fl- flipping. I'm like, oh, it keeps going and it keeps going. Oh, and there's Sherlock again. Oh, all right. I guess this is just the book. Very curious decision. Well, and it's one of those things. What, what was most interesting is that at first I was just like, okay, I, like, because you really don't have any idea how it connects mm-hmm. at the start. Because uh, it's just like these these two people in a desert trying to survive. Yeah. Um. You know, and then it like develops into this kind of whole discussion on Mormonism. Yes. <laughs> how the persecuted become the persecutors and yep. all of that jazz, which I actually thought as it got into it, I became more and more interested in that story uh, as it explained it. And I think it does one of the things that I find is fascinating in in fiction is whenever fiction can represent someone that is seen as an antagonist um, and then shows them in a light where you can at least understand how they got to that point yes. um, and why they did that and maybe even sympathize with them. I think that's well, fascinating. Let's build on that. Like, should Jefferson hope have been incarcerated for this? I mean, he killed two people. Yes, yes he should be incarcerated, yes. right? But it, it gives you, like, it creates a gray area. Well, no, definitely. I mean, and that's the gray area where, like, your vigilante superheroes live in, right? That's like, true, yeah. You know, and granted, usually in the comics, Batman doesn't kill people. But, but the Punisher does. But the Punisher does. Yeah, that's a, that's a good the point, Punisher, yeah. The Punisher should probably be or probably would be arrested, um, you know, if they could take him down. But I, I don't know. I, I think that I think it's fascinating because more often than not, people don't do things for just a random reason or just to be malicious there's usually something that happened at some point that turned them into the person that they became right um and i think that's it's always interesting to be able to see that perspective and it helps i think people in general in real life always want to look at things from a black and white perspective right you're good you're evil you know, you've always been good or you've always been evil. I've always been good. Well, yeah, I mean, it brings up the whole, like, Le Miserable story, you know, mm-hmm. Victor Hugo wrote with um, Jean Valjean. 
you know, Javert only sees him as a criminal. He just can't see past that black and white. Mm-hmm. He sold and, a loaf of bread for Christ's sakes. <laughs> and so, it, it, like you're talking about, it's interesting, you know, the whole, the question, the gray area, the black and white, you know, trying to deal with that whole conundrum. You know? And building on that, I think one of the reasons that Sherlock is such an interesting character, and unfortunately with the stories that we chose to focus on for this podcast, it's not really going to come to light. But one of the things that makes Sherlock is so interesting is he doesn't always just turn someone over to the law. Like he has yes. a different sense of justice. Like he has mm-hmm. a very strong moral compass, I think is fair to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And occasionally cases will work out where... Uh, um, maybe the Jefferson hope of another story doesn't kill whoever their enemy is, but yeah. things will work out and they won't end up going to well, jail. For instance, the blue carbuncle, which yes. I recently read, um, basically a guy stole a, stole a gemstone from a rich person and blamed, you know, sort of framed somebody else for it and tried to get away with it by feeding it to a goose um, which then he wasn't able to get his paws on and got mm-hmm. sold to this other random guy. Uh, and it's just this huge series of events. And for like Sherlock in that one, he really just wanted to get down to the bottom of it to mm-hmm. get to understand. For, well, a to make sure he understood like this was what happened. Right. Cause yeah. he deduces a lot of it and he wants to get that final answer. And, and it's almost, it, it, it's interesting cause it's almost like he needs to get that answer. Um, but for him, it's more so, it seems anyway, from like the things that we read and the other things that I read on top of it for this, his whole thing is that if somebody innocent is being blamed for the crime, he wants to exonerate them more than getting the other person punished. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's his whole thing is that if somebody innocent is going, is going to go down for something, he wants to exonerate them. And that, that seems to be what drives him. And to bring the truth to light is the biggest thing. It's truth. And also he really, I think, just um, doesn't hate, but he really um, doesn't like criminals that really, um, he has a hard time with criminals and the way that they think. And if they don't come to justice, it really drives him crazy. But also, I'm trying to think of how to word this. But yeah, he just, if the worst a criminal is, he really thinks that you yeah. know he needs to go after them and get them because this is you know someone that needs to be taken um brought to justice they yeah. need to be stopped and so, in yeah. the example of the of the blue car carbuncle again basically he it's the first time this guy committed a crime and it was really that that he saw a chance to make like a life-changing amount of money so he went for it and he could tell that he was never going to pull a crime again but if he went like the way that Sherlock explained it to Watson is like, if he goes to jail, he's going to become a career criminal. Whereas if I let him go and he runs off, he'll never do something again like this. And so, you know, in his mind, he's not only solving this crime, making sure the person that's framed for it doesn't get in trouble, but he's also preventing future crimes by not putting this guy into a system True. that generates that, which is a constant problem that we have to this day is that people just keep going into jail and they keep getting their, your, your, your environment, right? Who you're around is who you associate with. And so I think that's interesting because it's what like law and justice should be. Right. Yeah. But it can't be because it's a system. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of nuance to it. You said that he cares about bringing the truth to light. I want to pick at that point just a little bit. 
Maybe he does, but exploits end up in the newspaper and credit often goes somewhere else. And so you say that he wants to bring the truth to light, but that's one of Watson's beefs is that the whole story, the true picture isn't always painted. And that's why he feels it's important to chronicle in Sherlock Holmes. He believes in the criminal being brought to justice. No matter how the means happens, he just believes that even if he's not the one or if the truth isn't out there, he's not in it for the glory mm-hmm. to, you know, he doesn't want the recognition. I think that's part of when he needles Watson later about his stories is that he doesn't necessarily want his, you know, you know, he doesn't want everyone knocking on his door yeah. when he wants to be able to pick and choose what he wants to do and what cases and what stories to, but, um, you know, when he complains about Watson romanticizing, you know, he, to him, it's just part of his nature. It's an exact science. And if you're trying to explain to someone like he explains to Watson, he tries to do it in a scientific standpoint where Watson he, you know, he's he is a romantic at heart. He's sort of a ladies' man. He does get married, but something happens. No one knows what happens. They assume she dies. It never really explained. But you know, he talks about other women in other stories with Watson. So he's a little bit of a ladies' man. So, but well, speaking of ladies, the next story <laughs> that we covered was scandal <laughs> in Bohemia. This was. I should also note that but, studying. Oh, Sorry, go ahead. Going back to Scarlet, uh, studying Scarlet, you know, it's um, interesting because I just read that actually that story has been banned in Virginia because of the Mormon part of the story. Because some parents have made issue because of villainizing Mormons. And so that book has now been banned in school systems. And so... Well, I mean, every race, every religion, every group of people that has ever walked this earth has been a villain at some time, in some form, in some shape. Maybe it hasn't been depicted in popular fiction by a classic author, but like every group of people has been a villain at some point. Yeah, no, it's just kind of fascinating because you wouldn't think Sherlock Holmes being on one of those banned lists, but all of a sudden mm-hmm. it is. And- Burns, are you a big uh, proponent of those banned lists? <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I think you know the answer to that because I think we've discussed that before. Yeah, but I want to get you all fired up on mic right now. <laughs> I am vehemently against it. Uh, the The most common example of it that you see is like the, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn oh, yeah. by Mark Twain, mm-hmm. which... I will I will admit I I really dislike the book like I don't like it it's not fun to read mm-hmm. I had to read it in high school I had to teach it in two high school students I never really liked it but I think it is important and the reason that it's banned is because of the race racial things that occur in it but like the reason Twain wrote it that way was to show the That's injustices. I, yeah. And if you just sort of sweep that stuff under the rug, we don't learn from that and we are then doomed to repeat it. And I think that's the same type of thing with, you know, in this example, in the study of Scarlet, like if you don't see how, you know, these groups that were persecuted then can turn that around on other people mm-hmm. um, like that's going to happen again and, yeah. and, and other groups are going to do it, whether it's religious groups or, or what have you. Um, and it's just this constant sort of 
cycle that we run and the fact that we don't want to try to learn from those things and want to strike this stuff from memory because, ooh, bad things happened or it makes these this group of people look bad. It's just like, it's so dumb to me and I can't stand people that look at things from such a simple point of view instead of actually looking at it from how can we actually learn from this? Well, that's a great point you made up because Mark Twain did write it a certain way to try to wake us up. Mm-hmm. And if we can't teach our children, hey, you're reading the story, but Mark Twain wrote it in this sense, so please don't, you know, you know, it's just, I understand teachers can be overworked and there's a lot going on and kids don't really care sometimes, but it's just, it, like you said, it's hard when there's a group of people that just won't take to heart that, look, this is a, this is why he wrote it, you Mm -hmm. know, and, you know, just... It's heartening, disheartening to see this happen with well, works. Let's, let's start taking banned books and let's put them in Fortnite. Let's put Huckleberry <laughs> Finn in Fortnite. It would be the most boring season of Fortnite ever. We'll get you some culture, kiddos. We'll culture you right up. I gotta get to level 20 in the battle pass so I can get Tom Sawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to have to uh, whitewash that fence yourself, son. But, oh. but the um, interesting part for me reading, uh, studying Scarlet, it was just being able to um, dissect Sherlock Holmes' personality, which I'll talk about more. But to me, you know, he loves what he does. He wants companionship in a ways, but... Um, he also accepts that he's difficult. I think yeah. that first interaction between Holmes and Watson is super interesting because Holmes essentially says, well, what are your faults? Let's yeah. figure out if this is going to work yeah. or not. Mm-hmm. Like, he acknowledges that he can go into a funk and not speak for days on end and says, well, just leave me alone and I'll come out of it. Yeah, and I mean, and he is... Um, you know, and he'll disappear on days on end. And, you know, it was just interesting because to me, Doyle wrote him kind of lighthearted and, you know, he laughs, he smiles, he jokes around. And so leading to later, it's just, I feel like people have kind of twisted Sherlock's character a little bit to make him more arrogant and egotistical, where I didn't feel that in the first story of Studying Scarlet. I didn't feel that in any of the Sherlock stories. Yes. Uh, one other note I wanted to bring up on study in Scarlet, since I've tried to move us off multiple <laughs> times. Well, Phoenix- so a scandal in Bohemia. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Phoenix, you mentioned earlier how a lot of detectives were portrayed as these bumbling idiots. In this first story, you meet Lestrade and you meet Gregson, and they're both following separate threads in this murder investigation. I think both of those threads are perfectly plausible. They're they both perfectly reasonable. Neither of them was right, but you can see why each man believed in it. And I, I think that's what set Sherlock was apart, was that he saw the thread that Lestrade was chasing. He saw the one Gregson was chasing. He figured out another part that they had scene and like he put it all together and i think it's just an interesting evolution from the mr magoo detective to sherlock holmes they're looking at the different strands he's looking at the whole lump of twine to figure it out that's a good way to put it yeah thank you for taking my thought and expressing it elegantly (laughs) (laughs) that's what i'm here for tom (laughs) any other thoughts on studying scarlet before we move on it's a good book it's a good book i mean yeah with the drawing juxtaposition i'm sure it was jarring for all the readers Mm -hmm. because it was released by chapter by chapter all of a sudden okay but like you know we've read it bombed it it did okay but it wasn't the hit that you know 
it made him to be the short stories are what really made him to be the famous author and detective that he is today if brian asks us about that later we are going to crush him him. (laughs) next up we read scandal in bohemia originally published in july 1891 this is interesting because it was the first short story as later collected in the adventures of sherlock holmes and it's the first short story in that book in scandal in bohemia sherlock is commissioned by the king of bohemia Was it? Uh, <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> and you guys are just looking at me laughing. I have no help here. No, I was going to bring the book, but I didn't. Yeah, and ours is upstairs. He's commissioned by a king to retrieve a compromising photo from a former paramour. Despite a cunning and well-executed plan, Sherlock is foiled. He's foiled. What a failure. Turn off the podcast. What a bum. <laughs> A couple of key points from this story is it's the first short story, as I mentioned, and it introduces, uh, introduces, concludes, it is the entire Irene Adler saga across 21 pages. So the first question that I wanted to discuss, and Burns, I'll look at you first because Phoenix and I are both very passionate on this topic. Uh Why are people so nuts about Irene Adler? My guess is, looking at it, from a less cynical point of view first, if Sherlock has a fascination with someone, which is the way that it's explained kind of at the end, um, that character then becomes more interesting because if this person who can't, who figures everything out has this one like person that intrigues him and he can't completely figure out, that's in, instantly more interesting to people, I think. Um, looking at it from a much more... Uh, from from like an actual media standpoint, having a love interest is for sure the reason that they would include her in film or TV adaptations because they can latch onto this thing that he was infatuated with her and then, oh, we can twist this into being this or that or the other thing and there can be sexual chemistry and that's good for TV. All right, let's light this some bee on fire and roll it off the hill. <laughs> The thought of needing a love interest, like if the point of introducing Irene Adler into every form of media from the written works on is to have a female character in this completely male driven world. okay, I accept that. I accept that. If it's for Sherlock Holmes to have a love interest, not acceptable, not acceptable. In the story, it explicitly says that for a man like Sherlock Holmes to have a strong emotion like love would be like getting grit in a fine instrument. It'd be like a crack on the glass of his lens and it's just something that does not equate and in a world where people have a wide variety of sexualities sexual appetites whatever like i accept that sherlock holmes is just not interested in a sexual relationship of any type is it so impossible to believe that a man is asexual in the late 1800s it just the need to thrust Irene Adler into every form of media, every show, every movie, prominent roles for a love interest. It just drives me crazy. Like, it doesn't have to be Irene Adler. It could be Mary Smith. It could be could be Angela the, anything. It could be literally, it's a fictional universe. Pick any other name. Make up a name. Could be the lady downstairs, the landlady. It could be. Get a cheaper rent. 
Sherlock figured that one out. Well, actually, I think there is. Uh, someone's written stories where he and Mrs. Hudson are actually, yeah. So. Well, yeah. that's funny. Once something becomes a public domain, you can publish and make money off of your fan fiction. Well, it's, no, actually, these are novels, but it's interesting. Like, a Doyle, someone wrote him, and they're trying to create plays, and they're like, can we make uh, Sherlock Holmes get married? He's like, you know what? I don't care. Do whatever you want with my character. It's, you know, it's not written in stone. Where other authors are very protective of their characters, Doyle's like, no, do whatever you want. I don't care. Well, you know? and didn't Arthur Conan Doyle kind of have a love-hate relationship with Sherlock? Well, what I finally read was that he got tired of writing because he had to keep writing these short stories, but he wanted to write a lot of historical novels, which mm-hmm. he tried to write, but then he had to put aside because he had to write a Sherlock Holmes story. And so he was just getting frustrated that he could not finish any of his historical novels, which White Company is regarded probably his best work. It's about the Hundred Years' War. And then there's an actual textbook about um, the Boer War. Boer Wars that is still today standard on the Boer Wars. Which I believe I own, but I don't see it on our bookcase right now. It's yeah. like, Patrick, if you have my copy of the Boer War, I want that back, dude. I want it back. <laughs> But no, it, it's, you know, he, Doyle just basically, they have in letters, he's given people free permission to do what they want with Sherlock. So Fascinating thing I saw online, he wrote a lot of correspondence and he wrote a lot to his mom and a lot of those letters are actually preserved. So like you can see, you can actually like read this history. It's a fascinating look at someone that's been dead for 150 years. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think if you're looking at like having representation, not having to make like the person a love interest. I mean, you're better off making Watson a woman and having yeah. her be a like actual compatriot. How about a of... sober companion? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. That's the uh, premise for Elementary yeah, on CBS. Good show. Let me put one last final point on my Irene Adler rant. Like. Four novels, 56 short stories, she's in one. She's not this recurring character that pops up over and over again that he has this, like, lustful relationship after. Like, she's in one short story. Like, if she popped up in some form of media, that's fine. That's great. Like, I'd, I think a screen adaptation of uh, Scandal in Bohemia could be interesting. I forgot what story we were talking about <laughs> in my frustration. But just every... It seems like she pops up in every show, in every movie, and it's just... <clears throat> I. I'm done with Irene Adler as a love interest for Sherlock. What What's interesting to me is <laughs> this is probably the most tame of mysteries out of like any of it the is, Sherlock Holmes yeah. ones. It's like, all right, I have to I have to solve how to get this picture back from someone, mm-hmm. and then the solution to it was, all right, well, eventually she'll just leave it. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. We, well, to be fair, he had a pretty good plan, and she just outfoxed him on well, Exactly. And I think that's what's so interesting about this story in particular, is, like, Sherlock is outfoxed. Like, you know, he's the world's greatest detective. It, I, it's been eight years or so since I've read the rest of the collection, and I'm sure he gets defeated in at least one of the other stories. But it's just, I thought it was so interesting how they looped it all together, and, like, she was so brazen when she defeated him. She dressed up as a man and greeted him on the street outside his home after he tried to steal the picture the first time. So... If if uh, Sherlock was Spider-Man, Irene Adler is the Black Cat. Black Cat's in love with Spider-Man. Well, see, we didn't... The next story 
that Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle was going to write, I remember reading this, was going to be Irene Adler's return. Um, and it was that she was madly in love with Sherlock and was going to profess it by committing an even bigger crime because that was the way she wanted that, like Sherlock, to get drawn to her that way so that she could profess her love. Are you uh, hitting me with an M- episode of Cumberbatch right now? Is that <laughs> what you're doing? I don't think so, no. I, it might have been actually an episode of Cumberbatch. It could have been, but um, I'm more so just, just needling you. So. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's my game. I, I needle my friends. It doesn't come back this way. It's kind of a one-way street. And I'm also trying to liken it to a character that you enjoy. Yeah, well, I appreciated that effort. Yeah. I like Black Hat too. Actually, Irene Adler is Venom. No, <laughs> <laughs> Beanie, what stood out to you going back to Scandal in Bohemia? Um, you know, again, it's a lighter story versus some of his other ones. Um, you know, the Irene Adler story. You know, she is an interesting character in itself if we just take away that she's been media in other media as his love interest. She's a very strong woman. She's from America who's been traveling and singing and she's probably been in all types of courts of majesties. I think it'd be very interesting actually to read a story that followed Irene Adler. Yeah, she was no, the main character in a story. I think that could be fascinating. Just not as she was in love with Sherlock Holmes or he was in love with her. And... Yeah, I mean, she was a very daring woman. And um, she was, you know, she was knew how to keep up with the men, you know, and that's probably she had to learn how to do that, you know, through her travels. And we live right now in an era of strong and powerful women. Yeah. I, one thing that I have a hard time, like, flipping in my brain when I read a story like this, like, the situation for women, I'm sure, was very different in yes. England in the late mm-hmm. 1800s. And that's just not something that is, like, cons- consciously processing for me. Well, that's one thing I read somewhere. Someone brought up the point that um, Holmes basically sees women as equals, essentially. You know, he is polite to them. He doesn't look down upon them per se. He's, you know, when he interacts with them, it's in a politeness Mm -hmm. and he believes their stories, Mm -hmm. you know, where Watson is a victim of his time. Mm -hmm. He believes women need protecting. They need um, handholding. They're about to fall apart any minute. So, you know, Sherlock's a little ahead of his time in that sense versus Watson. Honey, I hold your hand. (laughs) You do. And I like it. <laughs> I like it too. But um, but again, it's just it was fun to read the story again, knowing how it all ends. And I'm a romantic at heart, and I believe, again, he ended the story perfectly because she married a man that she loved, and she was going off with this man, and you know. And the king basically had his checkbook. He's like, what do you want for this, Sherlock? Name your price. Anything in the world, and yeah. it's yours. And what did Sherlock ask for? He asked for the picture. And why do you think he asked for the picture? Well, I had an interesting thought about this. You know, she outfoxed him, which surprised him. And, you know, so I think that was kind of maybe his way to remember that don't take everything black and white because someone could still outfox you. The other thought I had was, the king of Bohemian kept saying, oh, I wish she was of a higher stature. Then I could have married her. You know, she was a great woman. He kept going back on what he was originally saying of the woman. So in my head was like, well, maybe Sherlock is trying to take the picture away from the king. Keeping the leverage out of his hands. Yeah, so the king doesn't 
think, oh, maybe I should track down Irene and, you know, so, but it was just a twisted thought I had that maybe Sherlock in ways was taking the photo from the king so that the king isn't always like having second thoughts about his marriage. But, but then in the lost short story, he has the picture up above his bed and <laughs> yes. he stares at it to go As to sleep a big poster. Night. Oh, jeez, I wasn't going that far. Jeez, Tom. But, no. I didn't say anything. I don't know what you're talking about. On paper, Irene Adler is a very fascinating, great character, a lot of rich history that, again, if you wanted to write another story just about her, it would have been fascinating to read. And I love that she married someone in the end that she loved and she could let go of the picture or let go of the whole scandal with the king which leads me to another frustration about every screen portrayal of irene adler as like this criminal as like this brilliant criminal like she wasn't a criminal like she she had some leverage and she used it on an important person to whatever ends but like she's not a criminal mastermind she wasn't gonna rob anybody she was just yeah so that is a frustrating part of my i agree with you it's just i'm a romantic but to me having sherlock with someone, I guess especially Irene, especially with her story just tied together in a tight little bow, it seems idiotic where like they could have figured out a different character for him to fall in love with. But I know because the name is familiar, media is going to use it. They're going to, because she outfoxed him in the stories, they're going to use it. But one little side note, I feel like, like it's kind of silly of her to keep a photograph when she knew what she was doing when she was courting the king. It's like, you know, it's like with sports athletes. It's like women. If you're going after <laughs> someone like that, you know they can't promise you the whole world. And I think it's kind of idiotic. <laughs> That's my personal opinion. So, <laughs> as a man, I don't know how I can comment on that. Burns, you got anything? Something about Kobe Bryant, but I feel like that's something we shouldn't touch. Uh, because he's a rapist, or because he's dead? Both. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Next, we move on to The Red-Headed League, published in August 1891. Sherlock's client had received a posh job in The Red-Headed League, earning a decent wage for menial work. He is required to stay in a room for four hours every day for eight weeks. One day, there is a note on the door that the League had disbanded, and he enlisted Sherlock Holmes to look into it. Sherlock follows the clues and stops a daring crime in progress. You know, I find this is one story that I wouldn't mind a little more detail on the criminal himself because Sherlock Holmes has been after him. And I'm just wondering if one of those secondary authors has done a longer story. I should look to see if someone has. But. That would be fascinating. So essentially, the the client was being fleeced. Like he owned a business that was in close proximity to a bank and they wanted him out of the business for hours each day so that these criminals could dig a tunnel under the bank. And Sherlock, of course, is waiting right there for them when they pop up out of the ground. Yeah, and it's a very clever um, story. It's it's hard to figure out where it's going at the beginning, talking about this well, league. Well, it's such a and, bizarre thing because yeah. the criminal puts an ad in the paper about this red-headed league and that they have an opening and that they're going to pay this. And so, like, all the red-headed people in Britain, which apparently is quite a few, turn out. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and a lot of them, apparently. It's just this elaborate setup to dupe this business owner who has red hair into showing up at this thing and getting out of the house for four hours a day. Yeah, yeah, because he was a homebody uh, at that point and only had this this person that he newly hired 
uh, working for him. And then like uh, some young woman that has been working for him for a while that he's kind of like, she's kind of like his ward or something like that. I believe it explained, but this is the one that I got the closest, I think to kind of knowing what was going on. I thought that the guy that he hired was stealing from him or finding some way to sort of steal from him uh, from his pawn shop. But uh, but yes, it was apparently to get into the bank next door, Um, which I think that's actually like that scene of him and Watson. And there was was it one cop? There was one cop and there was the chairman of the bank, the chairman of the bank, um, like waiting in there. And that's like I feel like there's some form of like action movie where like that has happened to some extent, like since then. Where it's like that same setup. They know they're coming through and they're waiting for the the light to pour through to start like shooting at him and stuff like that. Not that there was a lot of shooting in this, but um, I don't know. It, it is a really interesting scene and like more action than I think were is in any of the other stories with kind of like that build up to that confrontation at the end. It definitely was for the stories that we read. For sure, like as a whole, whole I don't know. Right. Well, no, yeah, that, that was going to say for like the, yeah. first, the first few of them anyway. Well, it's just, yeah, it's kind of interesting because in the story, he does give you a little sprinklings of what Holmes is doing. He pounds his cane on the street. If you're actually paying attention mm-hmm. to the clues, you can sort of try to figure out what he's figuring out. And, um... I know, I don't know the movie exactly you're thinking of, but I know there's a movie based off a true story called The Bank Job where they do tunnel around. That was a good movie. We just watched that with my dad not that long ago. Good film. Yeah. I've seen that movie, Casey. What do you think of that? (laughs) How do you like those apples? But no, it's just, it's a very, you know, one of those things like no murder mystery or anything and but there is a deep-seated mystery in it and and that's kind of nice to read about without having all this murder and mayhem at times without all the bodies hitting the floor yeah it's such an interesting and bizarre setup the red-headed league yeah and the reason that we chose these stories and maybe i should have set this up better but um you did a little research and like you're trying to handpick some of the most iconic sherlock stories for us to discuss for the show and red-headed league is above them and it's got to be because it was so bizarre because it wasn't an incredibly clever puzzle but it well, worked also scarlet was first red-headed league was second so you know we read the first and second short stories that he wrote and published in the strand which was brand new at the time because he published to other magazines the first two novels and the strand is what made him very popular um and very wealthy and very wealthy and the strand it turns out was half the cost of the other magazines oh interesting so i think money kind of played a role for that but you know but no, it's the Redhead League. I remember as a kid, I remember I think it's a bridge version for kids to get on Sherlock Holmes. Um, the bridge version, it was 20 pages, the whole story. I know. <laughs> it's, but, you know, it's, um, you know, kids can read it. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, like the Blue Carbuncle is another one that, I, you know, I sort of remember as a kid, okay. you know, a little bit. Because well, it's, it's goofy because yeah. it's like, you know. I forgot that he fed the diamond to the goose. Yep. That's hilarious. Yep, yep. There's this, there's this And there's a scene the where, goose, like, he yeah. couldn't determine which goose it was, right? Like, he bought the wrong goose. So, yeah. The there was, it was, yeah, because it was, so it was his, it was his, his sister that owned the geese. Um, and he was getting one of them for Christmas that they were fattening up for him. He's like, no, I want that one with the, with the, the, the bar on the back instead. And, uh, so he went and grabbed it, but there was one other one with a bar on the back and the sister's like, well, I never could tell them apart either. You know? So yeah. it's just like, so he's trying to track it down and he's, he's trying to, he's like, 
kind of, you know, because him and Sherlock kind of intersect then at the same spot, and then that's how Sherlock ends up confronting him yeah. to get the story from him, you know. Well, it's just um, the Doyle to be able to come up with these <laughs> mysteries, mm-hmm. and especially some ones that aren't murder mayhem, which we all think of when we think of mystery, um, you know, the Blue Carbuncle, yeah. the Red-Headed League, and just be able to come up with these, you know, your mind has to work in a certain way to figure out how this step process works. And and it's I enjoyable think, to read to just, you know. And I think Arthur Conan Doyle being a man of the world with all the adventures that he had, I think mm-hmm. that was tremendously helpful for his writing, especially in the mysteries. Yeah, but going back to what I was saying, you know, when the two guys dig through the hole, you you find out that one of the um, criminals is actually from nobility. And Holmes has been after him. He's a son of someone, and he tries to use that when he gets caught, but it doesn't work for him. But but supposedly he's this yeah, head... He makes the uh, Scotland Yard refer to him by your highness? Or your highness. Something as yeah. he's being let out, and he says, yeah. that's better. Yeah. <laughs> But it sounds like a very interesting character, and it would be interesting. It, this is one story would be like, oh, I wish I had a little bit more to the story of this character. You well, know? isn't it interesting to think of an author of short stories who creates all these interesting characters, and then, like, they're gone forever? It's like, yeah. huh. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting part is, like, you know, Watson will throw out, like, maybe three titles in a story. Like, oh, Holmes was dealing with, in Holland, dealing yeah, with the yeah. royal family, or he was... And that's the nice part because all the books I have upstairs, these are authors who are take a title and then they try to weave a story that matches that title. And so it's kind of fun to say, oh, this is probably what may have happened, you know, but... But yeah, the way that people's brains have to work to create, like, these mysteries yeah. and then, like you said, like, with them tapping the cane and stuff like yeah. that, to be able to like needle all of those little things in all the way through, like weave it all through there is fascinating. It's like, it's like people that create like those complicated, like puzzles, that, oh, like yeah. puzzle boxes or things mm-hmm. like that. It's just insane to me. It's like the opposite of George R. R. Martin, <laughs> whereas he keeps building and building and sprawling. It's yeah. like, yeah, just, uh, you know, here's his family from Westeros and they're gone forever and well, move on. Well, it's just like, he has to be a detective himself to, figure out okay this is the end result i don't know how they go about do it do they figure out what the end result is and go from there or you know but it'd be fascinating to know but so would would dan brown's novels be considered mysteries i would consider the da vinci code to be more of a thriller yeah i mean there's a pretty good twist in it there's a huge plot twist that i thought was pretty interesting but uh i haven't read his other works but i would Classified Da Vinci Code. I've always seen him more in the thriller okay. adventure section versus the mystery, but there is mystery to it. There's mystery to it, yeah. but it's not like yeah. a, a flat out mystery. Okay, yeah. I was just I was yeah. trying to see if that was maybe no, I the think, no, like a mystery novel I've actually read. I think Barnes and Noble categorizes it one way, but I think in true essence, it's like half mystery and half gotcha. you know thriller adventure. But, Next, we move on to The Speckled Band. We're jumping ahead a few months to February 1892. A noblewoman is engaged to be married. Her sister had been engaged two years earlier and died of mysterious causes. She enlists Sherlock's aid, so Sherlock and Watson go off to the country to see what they can do. Some of the key points in the story is a confrontation with the angry stepfather. 
Uh, Sherlock accidentally kills the antagonist in the resolution of the story, and Sherlock admits he was on the wrong path until he examined the noblewoman's bedroom. One of the first things that I want to talk about in this is the ending. Is it morally right that the antagonist dies instead of facing his crimes in some objective court? We talked about this earlier with the sense of justice. Like, I mean, in this particular case, it's not like Sherlock shot him, but his actions directly resulted in this, uh, in the bad guy. Well, I mean, dying. it's total self-defense on his part because, you know, he has to defend himself against the snake. He has no idea what the snake is going to do. So, again, it's gray area. He d- is sort of responsible for the death of the man, but I guess it's a hard thing to argue. Um, there's so many ways to look at it, but the man in question, he's sort of responsible because he believed he could handle the snake in the first place, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, one person, Sherlock, is trying to make sure he doesn't die, and then this other guy who... And he's in Florida, so he could stand his ground. (laughs) (laughs) Has has bought the snake, brought it, trained it with, supposedly trained it and stuff, but it's still dangerous. It's a wild animal. It's like he has to know that, you know, the consequences of having the snake in his room. So, See, and then if, if you make a modern or a newer version of it or a different version of it, you can put a twist in there where he handles the snake, but then the cheetah comes into the room and kills him <laughs> yeah, instead. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true, yeah. It's funny because this is the one that... So I was... I could swear the way that it was building it up was that he had paid... So there's like one of the things that they set up this whole thing going through there is that they have and I know this is a like a not the right or not the like it's a word they used in the book. Yeah, gypsy. They call them gypsies. There's a bunch of gypsies yeah. that are like staying outside and that that he's welcomed into his compound and everything like that. Um and so I could have sworn that, like, because it explains this whistling that happened, right? I could have sworn that they were, like, shooting, like, blow darts, like, really tiny blow darts in. And that is what, like, hit her with some weird poison and killed the sister and what they were trying to do to the other sister. That would never happen in Sherlock Holmes. I know, but that's, like, that's what I was thinking it oh, was. it's plausible. Not, like, yeah. not like uh, you know, a, a snake. <laughs> but the snake makes sense because he has, like, the baboon yeah. and, the, and the cheetah. Well, um, yeah, those are like the two sprinkling clues to give us yeah. that it's like, oh, what else could he possibly have, you know? But and pulling on the other end of uh, my key points, I like that Sherlock admitted that he was on the wrong track to Watson in the resolution of the story because a lot of more recent media, Cumberbatch, I'm looking at you specifically, you <laughs> some be yeah. like they build Sherlock up to be so arrogant and like he believes that he's above failing and in this story you see a very human side he's like well yeah i thought i thought it was going this way and then once i saw that couldn't be true i had to figure out another uh possibility i just it was very human and it was very humble and that's one of the reasons that i do enjoy sherlock is i feel that he is humble and grounded and like a man of the people a man that can get along with many different groups of people um yeah i was bringing up the same point is that this story Bringing up Bernadette's interpretation of Sherlock. Um, Moffat, also, you're at fault here, too. But, you know, a woman showing up at the dead hour of the morning. Everyone's asleep, you know. I thought that was a very 
fun moment in the book where Watson describes getting woken up by Holmes, who is a much later riser than him. And I thought that was just an interesting interaction between the two. And one of my favorite things was the way it was explained. Yeah. Was that, what? what's the landlady's name? Hudson. Oh, yeah. So he's like, Mrs. Hudson got knocked up and then she <laughs> did that to me and I knocked you up. And yeah. it just like made me laugh because it's like, it's so funny. Like, the wording build, is just, you yeah. You can build a joke out of this somehow. Well, it's just, get on it. it's fascinating because elementary they ran with that whole oh, joke yeah. because um, I don't know how many, and they have clippets online you can Google of uh, Holmes waking up Watson, and he does it in so many different variations. He puts a turtle on the bed that's his pet turtle. He <laughs> that he re- rescued from a crime scene. He starts poking her bed with a stick to make sure Mycroft's not in there. He he's just standing <laughs> there staring at her, and she wakes up. So they kind of took that scene and kind of went with it and it's fun kind of the creations that they created for that but that's awesome again going back to the point where Holmes is very much um, a gentleman in ways he has this woman who just shows up out of nowhere with no appointment and he believes her story. Mm-hmm. There's not much to her story, but he believes her story. Where and she thinks that her sister died of shock. She yes, th- and she thinks that she saw something so frightening, so horrible that it killed her because there was no. Her body was examined, and there was no visible sign of death. Yeah, but he, somehow Sherlock was sat and listened to her story. Was very polite with her. Where I have a hard time seeing Moffat and Cumberbatch's Sherlock doing that Mm -hmm. it's just very hard for me to see him sitting and being patient with a woman you know who is frightened of her life and doesn't know what she's saying because she doesn't know a lot of the story because he's above that yeah yeah Yeah, it's just that's one example why i have a hard time with their interpretation of sherlock and um it's just this story is a really fascinating story again talking about the redheaded league it's just has a lot of interesting pieces, and you have this piece, my least favorite animal in the world, of a snake coming through a vent and going down the cord towards the bed. It just terrifies the hell out of me, but, <laughs> you know, it's one of those stories that I had a hard time reading as a kid. It's like, I don't want to read this, I don't want to read it, but... Um, Thanks yeah. for being brave for the show, love. Doesn't always have to be snakes. snakes. <laughs> but, you know, and also, you know, little pe- pieces you know bolting the bed to the floor it's like coming up with that so the bed doesn't move like i wouldn't have even thought of that for mm-hmm. writing the story it's just you know so it is a very fascinating story and also it's like holmes is awfully brave to he knows it's a snake mm-hmm. he knows it's a deadly snake but he's willing to sit in a room in the dark on the bed waiting for the snake to come but he wouldn't tell watson that it's a snake <laughs> no he told watson that it was no, very dangerous watson and he figured it out he there's a line where watson he doesn't come straight out but watson goes ah he somewhat figures out what holmes is alluding to so um he doesn't straight out tell watson but i found it interesting that watson actually figured out from the clues that holmes gave him that's how i interpret it mm. Before I'm just they glad left. that Watson didn't fire the gun to try to shoot yeah. the snake and then kill Holmes. <laughs> that's true. That's like, a good point. A different series at that point. Yeah, that would have been an interesting ending to it. <laughs> but no, it's just... Um, <laughs> oh, God, Watson's Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> it just, again, Spoiler. it just shows um, how brave, you know, you know, he could have just said, well, you know, knock on the doctor's door while he's in the process of laying the snake through. He decides to wait in the room 
to have it come through. So, I mean, it's just kind of interesting points. But again, we talked earlier about Holmes' physicality with the poker. <laughs> you know, the doctor comes to show how strong he is. He bends the poker. <laughs> the doctor is the antagonist in the story, the woman's stepfather who yeah. you find out murdered his sister and was going to do the same with her via snake. And he confronts Holmes and uh, to show what a big, tough <laughs> man he is, he takes the fire poker and he bends it. And he throws it into the fireplace and then he leaves. And then Holmes goes and makes a comment about it and straightens it out and yeah. gets ready think, for the adventure. I think how he, how he puts it, he's just like, well, if he would have been here a moment longer, he would have <laughs> seen the grip that I have too. And then he just unbends it. And yeah. that, you know, it's just like, okay. <laughs> but I guess, do you have any other thoughts as so far as... I, the other interesting thing, like with you talking about how Holmes admits that he was thinking it was going one other direction... I can't remember if it was to Watson or if it was to the the woman, but at one point he says to one of them, because they were like jumping to conclusions kind of, and he, he sort of says, well, you, you know, that's suggestive. You shouldn't be, you know, you, you can't necessarily think that that's how, it, that's not how you solve one of these things is by jumping to conclusions. You have to be open to all all of the strands. And so then it's interesting that later on he like, actually says, oh, well, I was thinking it was this, but now I see that it's completely different. Uh, and I, I just think that's, it's it's fascinating. And it is cool to see sort of him, like, explaining that to Watson, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to, like, like the way that you put it, the Cumberbatch version of that story, he would never admit that he was wrong. And he'd tell Watson he's an idiot. Pretty much. Yes, he would. Well, Bernsey, you've now read roughly a quarter of the collected works of Sherlock Holmes. Are you into it? Are you going to keep going? Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's it's one of those things where I'll finish, as I'm working through, I'll finish the, uh, I can never, is it The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes is the that short story that, that those three are in? Yeah. So I'll finish that collection um, and then probably take a break, but I'll keep like working it into the rotation. I found like a website online um, that like has like an order that somebody suggested reading through the different things. And so the first was a study in Scarlet. And then second was the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And then after reading that, go back to the sign of four, because it helps the, the short stories help to flush out or explain a little bit more what Sherlock is as a character for then going back to the sign of four. So that's like, I'm going to follow like the order that he explained or that they explained in that. Um, and so, yeah, eventually I'll probably read it all. I recommend reading them in the order they're printed in the books, but you know, that's how my left well, and right. I've already jumped me. off of that. So. <laughs> oh, Burns. Oh, Burns, what are you doing to me here? Oh, you wanted me to read these. I couldn't read the sign of four. Fair. Peeny, <laughs> we have between us roughly 500 Sherlock Holmes books. Are you more excited to keep reading the Conan Doyle works or to move on to some of the other authors that we have? Um... I would love given infinite time. <laughs> given infinite time, yeah, no, no kids, yeah. Um, it would be fun to reread all the stories again. To just you know, reread them, get introduced to Sherlock Holmes, and then jump into all the books I have written by other authors, and to just again see how well they're able to do Sherlock uh, written. Um, but 
I would enjoy having the time to read them, yeah. Yeah, that'd be, it'd be awesome to have the time to read a thousand books. Yes. If somebody wants to check out some of the other authors of Sherlock Holmes books, do any immediately jump to mind for some of your favorites? Well, one of my favorites was um, The Man from Hell by Barry Roberts. It's the only one he wrote, um, but you would enjoy it because you love when, like The Valley of Fear, where there's a backstory. And so the man Fun from fact, hell. Valley of Fear is my favorite Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah. And it is not particularly close. I actually modeled a role-playing character after the protagonist in that story. Sherlock Holmes? Yep. No, actually they're barely yeah. in that story. <laughs> oh, but no, the man from hell by Barry Roberts is a great story. And, um, there's a lot of fun stories out there. They have, um, the star of India was another one I really enjoyed. And there's uh, a pretty famous author that writes Sherlock stories, right? Was Is it James Lovegrove? James Lovegrove is really big right now. He's written for Firefly novels. He does a lot of Sherlock Holmes. He does Sherlock and Cthulhu together. He does um, steampunk Sherlock, I think, where there's a little bit of steampunk brought in. But um, there is a guy, um, Anthony Hortworth. I'm butchering the name. Is it Horowitz? Maybe. He did a famous British uh, mystery called Foil's War, but his young adult series, Alex Ryder, is his most popular series. Um, but he wrote two stories, one from Moriarty's perspective. And that one's just called Moriarty, right? I believe so. And then I can't... give you that book. Yes, he did. Then and... we got married. Boom. But the weird part is the whole story is you have no idea who you're following through the whole story. And then in the end, you find out who it is. Oh, interesting. The way he writes it, you have no idea who it is. Fascinating. And um, at the end, you kind of start getting inklings. And then you're like, wait, is it? Is it not? I thought you died. Because it takes place after the final problem where he was supposed to have died. Huh. So it's kind of fascinating. He plays in uh, a Constable, I think. And so that's how he gets back into the world. And also, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has written three Sherlock yes, Holmes stories. Yes, you gave me I those. Think, uh, yeah. What? Yeah. yeah. I think Ma- it's Mycroft. Mycroft Holmes stories. Yeah, he follows Mycroft Holmes. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. But, so to put a bow on the written works of Sherlock Holmes, there's the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle official works. They're phenomenal. They're great stories. They're still a lot of fun to go back to. But there's also a ton of more contemporary authors that have written pieces in the timeline all over the place. And they also will take Sherlock and put him with the War of the Worlds. They put him up against Dracula. They um there's Phantom of the Opera version. There is um so they do take him and mix him up with stuff. So then what would be your dream for Sherlock Holmes to get mixed up into? I have a guess, but I want you to say what you're gonna say first. Oh uh, a crossover with Nero Wolf. Boom. <laughs> well, are we talking about the time period that he lived? Or I'm just saying, t- in general, somehow you could wedge, uh, you could wedge Sherlock Holmes Ooh. into anything else somehow, and have it make sense in some way. Ah, uh, that's a hard one. I mean, Lord of the Rings was pretty good. We already discussed that. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I mean, we solved that. That writes itself, really. No, it's true. I mean, he'd be spoiling everything. He'll tell Luke that, hey, that's your father. What are you doing? You know. <laughs> so really, Sherlock is just the person that ruins everything yeah. for everybody. Yeah. That's what we're saying? 
<laughs> we'll just start a new podcast. Oil is done. 50 episodes. Good job. And the next podcast will be Sherlock Holmes ruins everything. <laughs> like, I, was, I, I would think that, like, somehow Sherlock Holmes mixed with Doctor Who would be something that you could get into. That would be fascinating, those two have Doctor Who show up during... Both written by Stephen Moffat in recent iterations. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, that would, yeah, I didn't, I totally forgot about Doctor Who in the moment. Yeah, that would have been, that would be a fascinating mashup, mashup, and, you know, I haven't read the book of Dracula and Sherlock together. Um, I should read that, and, considering Dracula is my favorite book. Yeah, it'd be interesting, those two together, to see, you know, but, oh, uh, Batman and Sherlock, Ooh. that would be an interesting. <laughs> and the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and venom yeah. yes perfect there's a ton of written works about sherlock holmes we strongly encourage you to check them out the conan doyle works are great but there's also a sherlock to meet any other taste so we were at a mystery dinner party and we were sitting with a group of people and one of the things we had to figure out how was the person supposed to get from point a to point b down the stairs in time to murder the person so I decided to hop on the railing of the stairs and slide on down. My dress got caught. I flipped off, rolled down the stairs, and hurt my back. Is there anyone that could help me with my poor back? Well, certainly, love. You can check out Premier Health. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, uh, murder mystery-related injuries, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. Next, we're going to welcome in friend of the show, Brian, to do Two Truths and a Lie, a special 50th edition Two Truths and a Lie about Sherlock Holmes. And now for our 50th episode, we have a special treat. Brian is here to play Two Truths and a Lie, the Sherlock edition. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. It's nice to be back. It's been a month. Yeah, but it'll be longer than that by the time the show airs, but three, two, truths and a lie works. Brian's going to read three statements. Two of them are true. One of them is a lie, and it's going to be up to Joey, Phoenix, and me. The first time we've ever had three contestants on two truths and a lie play this game. So uh, this one's going to be slightly different because obviously this is Sherlock, um, and it crosses a lot of mediums. So what I'm going to be doing is when I ask questions, I'll give you guys an idea of kind of what realm we're talking about. Um, so that you can kind of hone things down a bit, because otherwise it it is crazy how much he has covered. <laughs> and um, as uh, as we discussed earlier in the show, Bernsey, you've never seen anything related to Sherlock Holmes, so you're going to be terrific at this. I've, so I, I, I've seen the most important things. The most important things. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure we've already talked about. In great detail. <laughs> <laughs> now, he's, he's typically quite deductive, uh, unlike you, Tom, who shouts out the first thing he thinks of and then backtracks and then waits for someone else to talk. Disagree vehemently. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to do round one. So again, for those of you to remind how the game works, we are going to be reading off three statements. And then it is up to the contestants to then determine which of the three statements is a lie. So we are doing round one. And this is a Doyle question. So for all those that don't know it, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes. Oh, we covered that already. Allegedly. <laughs> I don't really pay attention to the show, to be honest. If I'm not on it, I don't listen. Yeah, sometimes when you're on it, you don't listen. You're just humming away, typing. <laughs> you should be happy. I'm so enthusiastic to be here with you. I'm one of the few people that are. All right, fair enough. I appreciate you. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> okay, here we go. Round one. Again, so this is a Doyle question. 
So, statement number one. Sherlock was inspired by the real-life physician, Dr. Joseph Bell. Statement number two. Doyle had originally planned to name his detective Sherringford, but settled on Sherlock due to his love of cricket. And then three, Sherlock Holmes is the second most filmed fictional human of all time. All right, so here's how this is going to work. Bernsey, you get to answer everyone first. Then I'll let Feeney go, and I'll just pile on everything that Feeney says. I was going to say, I figure how it should go is that Phoenix should always go last, because she probably already knows the answer. I think that's fair. (laughs) Well, to be fair, I am absolutely certain on one of these because of something Phoenix told me recently. So I'm absolutely certain one of these is true. So that leaves me between two. I lean towards... um, now, here's where Brian gets me. Brian can be all over the place with numbers. Sometimes they're just believable enough to be right. Sometimes he outmetas me. I think I think that Sherlock is the most like uh, filmed, fictionalized character of all time. Because in Feeney's research for the show, you've watched roughly a billion hours of different Sherlock Holmes portrayals. So I think... That has me hung up because... Jesus... Well, I guess, I don't know, it depends on if you say... Jesus hasn't been in that many TV shows, honey. <laughs> well, well, there's well, movies, well, well, and then... We're also talking about fictional characters, so <laughs> we're sorry for everybody that's Catholic listening to this. <laughs> well, I guess Jesus was real, but... um. So, I guess... She's backtracking for her internal soul. Yeah, I am backtracking. So, I guess... You're saying second most? Second most filmed fictional human of all time. I'm going to say that's the lie because I think that he is the most filmed fictional human. That is my answer. I'll leave it to Joey and Phoenix to parse out the... I'm going to say... That that one's like... It's too much of a minefield to to put my stakes on. Um, the, 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 The middle one was oddly specific. I have no idea about cricket. I don't know what a Sherlock has to do with cricket, so I'm going to go with that one. My gut was the second one, but... My gut was the the, second uh, one, too, but you've... There have been so many portrayals of Sherlock Holmes in movies and TV shows. That has to be the lie. He has to be the most popular. I know the first one is true. Yeah, the first one is definitely true. Um, If he's saying second most, yeah, it's... Because that could be the trick, too, right? Yeah. Well, I'm going to say number three. So you two agree, and then it's me on my own island. Correct, and we need to get three out of five to be proclaimed a winner. <laughs> and the lovely couple wins. Yes. Now, we are so guys, smart, honey. You High guys, five. You guys had it, but you had it in kind of a sideways because you weren't exactly... Disagree. No, because <laughs> he, he is the number one most filmed fictional human of all time, mm-hmm. but he is the second most filmed fictional character of all time. Number one is Dracula. So apparently, oh, um, yeah. Sherlock Holmes has had somewhere, it's, it's two numbers, it's either 236 or 255 films with him featured in the film. Oh, it was just films? It wasn't counting TV? Just films. Oh, boy. You still I got it. I had the potential to be way wrong. You still got it. Uh, Dracula. Um, I forgot again, about Dracula. Depending on the number, how it goes, it's about 15 to 20 more. Wow. Um, and it's just, it's crazy. I think there's been like a total of 75 people that have played Sherlock Holmes in totality for just movies. For just movies. It's bonkers. It is. No, uh, yeah. It's just one guy on stage played him a thousand times. And that was in the 1900s. Wow. On stage a thousand times. Oh, Brian's like, you raised that? <laughs> <laughs> Back off. 1899. Delete. Okay. So you guys did great. Uh, round two. We're going back to our boy Doyle. Um, so 
for statement number one, Study in Scarlet, Doyle's first Sherlock tale, was so commercially successful that he was immediately offered a 10-story contract unheard of at that time. Statement number two, Sherlock Holmes was heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe's detective C. Augusta Dupin. And number three, Study in Scarlet was written by a 27-year-old Doyle in three weeks. Well, I um, I mean, I know it's cheating, but Feeney, I'm going to look to you here. What's the relationship to, between Sherlock and Poe again? You were just telling me about this the other night. Well, it's hard because they didn't go in the relationship, but I was just reading the history, and the guy was just talking about the history of detective or, um, detectives, so... I can't really say for sure. Um, I know the way Doyle writes about him, he's like a pompous idiot, but um, I... The Tom of his time. Yeah. <laughs> no. I'm not pompous. <laughs> I'm so smart. <laughs> if I recall correctly, I think the last one, three, is correct. Um, the first one... I feel like that's a lie because... Studying Scarlet was a novel, and there aren't ten Sherlock novels. Where he might have been contracted for the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which is a collection of short stories. I don't know how many volumes are in that collection of short stories. We discussed three of them already on the show. I don't remember how many there are. So I, I'm in a quandary here. I have no idea which way to go. <laughs> I like how Tom goes. The first one I think's alive. I have no idea. <laughs> I... So, so what were? Can you reread them one yeah. more time? Do you guys want all three? Yeah. Uh, yes, please. Okay. Statement number one. And if you ever ever needed to ask, um, study in Scarlet Doyle's first Sherlock tale was so commercially successful that he was immediately offered a ten-story contract, unheard of at that time. Statement number two. Sherlock Holmes was heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe's detective C. August Dupin. It's either Dupin or Dupine. And then three, Study in Scarlet was written by a 27-year-old Doyle in three weeks. Study in Scarlet's not a tremendously long novel. That one is believable enough for me. Judge Brian's reaction, giving I'm, nothing away, terrific. I, I'm, I'm going to go with the last one. As the lie? Yes. Interesting. Feeny? I'm debating between one and two. Yeah, I am too. I mean, maybe The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes was contracted. Maybe. So I am going to say that number two is the lie, that he's heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe's Dupine. That's the one I'm pretty sure is 100% true. Oh. But I could be wrong. Whoops. Now what? (laughs) (laughs) Tom's eyes got big. I just, yeah, just, I, I'm getting mixed up because I'm reading the history of detectives and the way he writes it just, you know, confusing me. Part of me is thinking, did they have contracts back then? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know how they set it up for the writing for the magazine. You know, I don't know if people just submitted stories and they depended whether to publish them. That's probably it. All right. Number one's the line. <laughs> you talked me into it, love. Well, is that your final answer, Phoenix? Or you guys don't have to answer the same thing. No, I know. I'm just. Oh, I want to say two, but you could both take one, and then at least as a couple, you nailed it, right? You could just play the meta game. Yeah, <laughs> I'm staying with number one is the lie. You can do what you want, honey. I just. Oh, it's hard. Um, that's what she said. Is that what you uh, said, honey? <laughs> that is actually what she said. The problem is there are so many detectives written at that time. Um, Come on, Vinny, what do you got? I'll do one. Joe, and you picked three? I picked three. 
the lovely couple wins again. Gosh. Ooh, we so, are so good. Actually, so the study in Scarlet was actually a commercial flop. It actually did not, it was not well received. He submitted to the 27 folks. It finally got picked up on a publisher and it That's did not do well. Right. And it actually kind of held him back briefly. Um, but he does uh, say that he was inspired by how Edgar Allan Poe's detective was. But it's for a lot of folks, Poe had done it in such a shallow, superficial way, and that's what Doyle was so nasty about. He's like, well, he, he didn't, he, he thought he was like a child basically writing, and that's why when he like started to write these novels, he essentially built the genre himself. Yes, Poe had come before, but he was the one that actually did it. Yeah, that's, well, uh, Dickens and other people wrote detectives, but they were just, they made their detectives as idiots, and yeah. there no one wrote a detective. So they misremembered it. Yeah, <laughs> they did. Yeah, so they never fully wrote <laughs> it's not, it's not a story like Sherlock. So that's what was unique about him. Okay, so now you guys need to get—is it three out of five to be the winner? Is that—is that Tom's scoring? Uh, it's actually Brian's scoring, but yes. <laughs> okay, I've been okay. rubbing a good luck Peter Parker, but he has not been good luck so far. <laughs> That's my lucky Peter Parker. He's actually He's holding fair. a small Spider-Man doll. For those of you that were worried by the statement, we're good. I'm switching to Mario. All right, I'm perfect. rubbing Mario now yeah. vigorously. Mario. Okay. <laughs> Back to the game, everyone. <laughs> um, round three. Woo. This is uh, the Downey goodness. This is the Downey goodness. So these are, this is the film with Robert Downey Jr. Colin Farrell was in talks to play Watson before Jude Law was cast. Statement one. Statement two, the 2009 Guy Ritchie film was his first not to be rated R in the U.S. And then statement number three, the 2009 film was released 100 years after Sherlock Holmes' first foray into film. The silent film, Sherlock Holmes Baffled. Having done a Guy Ritchie show, I, uh, I'm embarrassed that I don't actually know the answer to that one. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's true. I feel like that's true. I am leaning towards the first one being the lie about Colin Farrell. I'm sorry, leaning that way too. I think that he, uh, I mean, he looks a little bit like Downey, and I just feel like it'd be odd for them to have two similarly looking characters as Holmes and Watson. I mean, hair dye, or different oh. haircut, look shaved at, head. Look at him as the Penguin Man. Yeah, yeah no, that's yeah. true. Quite a bit different. I think it would have been great, actually. Um, two is the rated R. Correct. And number three mm -hmm. was the Downey Jr. Guy Ritchie film was on the 100-year anniversary of the first Sherlock Holmes film. Because I don't... Did Guy Ritchie do any, like, any non-Guy Ritchie-esque movie prior to Sherlock? Yeah, he did that one on the beach, right, with his wife? Yeah, swept away, and then there's Revolver, but I don't remember if Revolver was that dark. I don't know. That dark. Like, sexy times in... Ray Liotta was like one? in a shower screaming, wasn't he? Rest in peace. <laughs> oh, Joe's yeah. renting it now. <laughs> yeah, which one's that one again? <laughs> oh, disgusting. What was the time of the film? <laughs> uh, yeah, who knows with Madonna how risque that went. Because um, yeah. she was into like tantric stuff, right? We're playing a game. Let's dive back. We drifted a little bit. Um <sighs> Brian, does talking about the human body and intimacy uh, make you uncomfortable? Only when I'm this close to you, buddy. Yeah, I'm touching your leg now. Yeah. Well, you have a very smooth <laughs> leg, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. I use a pumice stone. I guess I can't remember what the rating was for the movie. I just... It's hard to see it rated R, though, because it doesn't seem to be rated R. Um, 
I don't know. I'm oh. sticking with Colin Farrell. You're sticking with Colin Farrell. What was the last one again? The 2009 film was released 100 years after Sherlock Holmes' first foray into the film. The silent film Sherlock Holmes Baffled. Well, if that was 100 years, how many Sherlock films have come after Downey Jr.? There was Downey Jr. 2. That would mean that there are 100 and roughly 60 films in 100 years. Oh. I'm going to change my answer. I'm going to say that number three is the lie. I was thinking three. I just can't remember the title of the movie. but There wouldn't have been a lot of silent films in the late 1800s, right? Like, the time frame matches... To when like silent films were popular because it was like the late 1800s was like when film actually started like late 1890s right first silent film was like 1891 or 1892 yeah. and so I mean, so that would also put downey jr at 1991 way before it happened this one's downey all kinds of 2009 yeah the 2009 film. so then it would be 1909 would be number three is the lie Put on the board. <laughs> I, I know he, there was a silent film. I just wish I could remember the title, but I'm gonna go with number three. I'm gonna see now. Now, now it's one of those things where it's like, do I just go with them? Do I? But I'm gonna go number one. This is how people start smoking cigarettes. <laughs> I'm glad that you yeah. turned them down. I'm gonna go number one, um, just because 2009 ish. I don't know that Colin Farrell was like the it guy. It was a little bit before that, and then it was more recently. Phone booth. That was um, around. Oh yeah, I know he was the it guy for a while. SWAT. Okay. When did that come out? Yeah. I'm. I, I'm gonna. Uh, okay. You're well, stick with, with, stick with your choice. Now you're, now you're talking me out of it. <laughs> Let um, me give you the ancient and logic advice. Are you ready for this, honey? Yes. One of us. One of us. One of us. Go wake book. up, Daisy. And get her going. <laughs> um, I'll stick with Colin Farrell. I'm probably wrong. Okay, the lovely couple's got it. See? Now, here's the here's the weird part. You guys have gotten multiple ones right here, and your logic, like, you guys logic your way to it, but it's, like, <laughs> not a direct route, and sometimes you you base it off something that doesn't even make sense. Like, the number of films... Welcome to my life, right. Brian. It, it was... The, the original Sherlock Silent film was 1900. Mm-hmm. That's when it came out. So I gave it a nine-year difference. And you kind of came in the back door on that one. <laughs> You're like, no, how many films? No, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> Nothing to do with the question whatsoever. Well, I was going back to your previous question. Was it question number one? You said there was something like 170 films that had Sherlock Holmes. Two, 256 on the high estimation. 256. And you said that this was on the 100th anniversary of the first film, mm-hmm. which meant all those films would have had to fill in in 100 years. Those All those films filled in in 109 years. Yeah, which is way longer than 100 years. <laughs> Those nine years, they cranking stuff out. <laughs> All right, they already won. Um, I'm glad I've had you guys flip-flopping, though, because you guys <laughs> got to start on certain ones and move around. Uh, Colin Farrell was in talks to play Watson, um, but then Jude Law, they just thought was a better fit. Jude Law is freaking harsh, man. Yeah, and then uh, Guy Ritchie, that was his first film in the U.S. not rated R. That was it. So number one there. Okay. okay. All right, so moving on to round four, we're back to Doyle. Um, statement number one. Doyle brought Sherlock Holmes back in The Hound of the Baskervilles due to being bored with the genre he largely created. Statement number two. At That's no lie. point in... Is it canonical? How do I always say this word? Yeah, yeah, you canonical, thank you. It, at no point in the canonical story does Sherlock Holmes say, It's elementary, my dear Watson. And three, the Sherlock saying, The game is afoot was borrowed from Shakespeare's Henry V. 
Good question, Brian. This is a this is a tricky one. I'm gonna stick with my gut. I'm gonna say the first one's a lie. I don't even remember what it was. What was the first one? Doyle uh, brought Sherlock Holmes back in the Hound of the Baskervilles due to being bored with the genre he largely created. Like basically, he thought everybody else was trash. Kind of had an ego. Uh, I think that's wrong. I think he was he was pressured into bringing yeah. Sherlock back because of popular demand he got the reason why he killed yeah. him was he got sick of writing him. yeah and then he got in that car accident and that crazy nurse was like nursing him back to health but like <laughs> broke his leg when he tried to leave that's stephen king misery yeah. <laughs> I, i'm going with one help yeah. all right we're all, we all agree on yeah. one you're yeah. all correct Ooh, four now for four. the reason that he did come back though was because he was going broke he didn't come back because of the pressure. He was okay. going broke. He oh, apparently had outspent right. his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I got to do something quick. So instead of actually writing, uh, he kept Sherlock dead. But then the stories would have been write, written preceding that moment. See, that's what I don't get. Why didn't he continue doing that? I mean, he could have just kept writing stories and Forever. keep him dead. He could have. It's, it's just, why did he bring him back? I just, I don't know. I was in his shoes. I can't say. <laughs> 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 All right, you guys, for the perfect round. Now, this is pressure because you're going to be, if you can pull this off, you're perfect. Phoenix is already perfect. What you need to try Thank to you. do here, Brian, is divide them <laughs> and make it so only one of them is 100% correct. I tried to screw them up earlier to separate them so that they yeah. could at least guarantee one victory, but they stuck together for thicker they're thin. So, we have two babies. We can handle <laughs> anything. <bro. laughs> what about a third baby? No. No. <laughs> Tom and Phoenix versus the world. Surgically impossible. <laughs> All right, here we go. We got round five, which is titled Cumberbatch is King. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Statement number one. Benedict Cumberbatch is distantly related to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the original Sherlock Holmes books. They are 16th cousins twice removed, and their common ancestor is John of Gaunt. Statement number two. Matt Smith audition for the role of Dr. Watson before his Doctor Who 2005 audition. Stephen Moffat thought he would be better playing Holmes, but the part was already given to Benedict. Statement number three. Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman introduction to one another and chemistry in The Hobbit was the direct inspiration for the duo to be in Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, because that came out after. The last one's yeah, It's such good chemistry with smog. <laughs> oh, you're doing so well, Brian. Number three is a lie. Number three. I, I kind of threw that one out at you guys. There you go. Just because I know how much Tom loves the Hobbit films. <laughs> yeah, I hate them with a burning, fiery passion. And there was one piece of media that I could like erase outside of Sansa Stark. It would be the Hobbit movies. Right there. So here's... Okay, so... The show actually came out in 2005, huh? Must have. I was trying wow. to figure out the math in my head when Matt Smith took over when as the doctor. When did come out? Oh, way later. I was going to say, that's what More I thought, like, too. Yeah, what Phoenix and I started dating we in 2011. We were dating, yeah. yeah. No, it was like 12 it was after or 13. Yeah. So. Okay. so, the other interesting fact, you guys got it right. Congratulations on being perfect. Yeah. Oh, we know. Yeah. Um, the bonus, Thank you. The bonus fact that was really interesting, because we have some Who fans in the house, uh, the Doctor has been played by Peter Cushing and Tom Baker, both of which who have also played Sherlock. Nope. So it is crazy how many people have done that role. Interesting tidbit. Uh, uh, Ian Richardson, who played Sherlock, um, also played Dr. Bell in the TV show, which is with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Dr. Bell's TV oh, series. So. Interesting. That's awesome. So. That's awesome. 
Yeah, Dr. Bell was, he was a speaker at um, Edinburgh, um, and apparently he was really known as a doctor who had diagnosed a lot just based off the observation of the patient before they even got on the table. Yeah. Um, and that is where Doyle got introduced to it because he was a physician's attendant, and there you go. And in that show, he says, it's elementary, my dear Doyle. It's <laughs> um, so a surprise anybody didn't know that. But yeah, I probably mentioned it earlier, but yeah, when uh, the story uh, Studying Scarlet came out, um, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote to Doyle and says, you based him off a bell, didn't you? (laughs) And they have the letter. And so he was able to figure it out as well that Doyle had based him off of Dr. Bell. It's just crazy, those interactions. Yeah. The, The other one that, did you know, Phoenix, did you hear about him and Oscar Wilde? Doyle and Wilde? No, I, I, I know I heard something, but I never really looked into it to Basically, see what it was. Apparently, Wilde had read Scarlet, and they sat down. They had some sort of dinner, and Oscar Wilde convinced him to write a second story. Oh, really? Like, they said that without him kind of pushing him once at a dinner party, that it likely wouldn't have happened. Oh, what interesting! I thought that was absolutely fascinating how these people are crossing each other's paths. So, was that a story after a study in Scarlet, or like was that? Writing the second half of it was a study after in Scarlet. A study in Scarlet. Okay. So apparently that one had flopped. He came back again. I don't remember what the next one was off the top of my head, but that the one sign of, four. sign of the four. Yeah. It became a commercial success, which they have the sign of the four. It's, it's interesting because I was watching the Robert Downey Jr. movie today. That was all over the place. You have all these references to the book and the movie I didn't even notice. So I just got it when I was doing the research for this. So. Well, Brian, thank you so much. This was another great game of Two Truths and a Lie. Thank you for dropping by. Thank you much, and enjoy the rest of the conversation. Thank you. Hey, OIO community, I just wanted to say hi to everyone, and I just want to say uh, thanks to the show. It has been 50 episodes, which is hard to believe. Um, The first episode I was on was episode three, if you'd believe that, and it was Tom and I sitting across from each other in an apartment in a dining room. Um, and it is amazing to me how much the show has grown, how much the folks involved have grown on those mics, and just how much the community overall has grown. Um, so I just want to say thank you. Um, it gives me a way to connect with folks in a way that I wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to in the last couple of years. So thanks again. I'm looking forward to 100. Next up, we'll tackle our top five. It's time now for... Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. For our Top 5 today, Phoenix is going to rate the Top 5 Screen Portrayals of Sherlock Holmes. Yikes. (laughs) This wasn't painful at all, was it? Uh, No. (laughs) Tom, I'll test him my crying the last few days. You were wonderfully balanced, my love. Phoenix, you did a, this is not hyperbole or an understatement, (laughs) you did a ton of research for this segment. How did you evaluate the different portrayals of Sherlock Holmes? What were you looking for as you created this top five list? Um, I was trying, well, reading a study in Scarlet, you know, trying to figure out again whose home is, and doing some research, and reading Holmes on paper... It just seemed there's be this juxtaposition, and it turns out that um, the illustrations aren't technically correct to Holmes. 
they made him too handsome in the illustrations versus how Doyle describes him. Well, in any yeah. screen portrayal, they're not going to depict a hideous troll. As well, the just the <laughs> illustrations that were in the magazines itself. So it started there. You know, with the Deerstalker cap, that was an illustration done. So it was like Zac Efron shirtless with the Deerstalker <laughs> hat? Yes. <laughs> oh, man, I can get behind that Sherlock Holmes. Um, Basically, his whole body is like a giant arrow sculpted pointing down to his <laughs> no i just feel like um you know doyle never maybe corrected people when the illustrations came out he just was like this is my this is sherlock i'll just you know well i'm sure and he didn't have much saying it like he probably submitted probably the story not. got the paycheck and then like was just flipping through it like the average consumer was like oh okay yeah so this is what he looks like so you're saying tom's version perfect version of sherlock <laughs> is Chris Hemsworth as, like, Rip Thor, and Arthur Conan Doyle's is, like, Fat Thor, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rip Thor is the man. I cannot wait for Love and Thunder. Yeah, no, it's going to be fun. Um, And then I was just reading the history um, about detectives, you know, reading a little bit about Doyle and stuff, and uh, Sherlock being the first detective. And he goes on after writing about Sherlock, he goes on saying that there's this other author, I wish I could name remember the name he started writing stories a little bit after Doyle but he had to make his detective seem different from Sherlock so he described him as where Sherlock was egotistical and arrogant my guy was kind and nice where Sherlock was this way so I feel like that author also did a disservice to the true character on the paper I guess for me reading the stories again Sherlock laughs a lot he smiles a lot he has fun with watson he um and i think that's one of the key things that separates our perception from maybe some other people's perception there's this perception that he's always talking down to watson and i i'll speak for you here but i've always interpreted as a more light-hearted conversation me too Uh, maybe it's just because i'm a person who needles the people closest (laughs) to him in his life incessantly as burn so kindly pointed out earlier in the show but i never i never got a sense that he belittled watson or talked down to watson and i think a lot of the screen portrayals for whatever reason depict that type of relationship between the two i feel the same way i just don't see it in the on paper and i guess the problem is is that if someone has seen the Bernadette Cumberbatch uh, Moffat series, I think they will take what they've seen and then read the story and, and print what they've seen onto paper is what I feel like people are doing at times. Well, yeah. that's always going to be the case. Whatever your introduction to a character is, like True. that's where you're going to form your first impression. And those first impressions last. It's hard to break those. On the one hand... I, I hate the Bendit Cumberbatch portrayal with a burning, fiery passion. From the very first episode where they took my beloved antagonist Jefferson Hope and made him an actual cab driver. Yeah. As, oh, that drove me insane. <laughs> I love it or hate the portrayal. BBC has made Sherlock big. Yes. BBC has put Sherlock in front of a lot of people and has put mm-hmm. the name in front of a very wide audience. So that's, I mean, that's good for one of our favorite characters to have that exposure. More people are going to read the books now because of the BBC yeah. show. They're just going to have the wrong impression of one of our favorite <laughs> characters. So it's funny because as I've been reading, so I've definitely seen Watson as Martin Freeman, like just like visually in my head, like that's how I've pictured him. But I haven't, necessarily pictured Sherlock as Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay. Um it's probably actually been like just more like the the illustrations. Yeah. Um 
that that I think I've just sort of visualized Sherlock as, as opposed to that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if maybe it's because the character just doesn't seem as similar the way that it's written as it does from that show. And you mentioned that maybe it doesn't seem the same as it's written in the show. Maybe, maybe we give Benedict Cumberbatch too much hate. I mean, generally speaking, we don't particularly care for him as an actor, either one of us. Uh, I think he's fine as Doctor Strange. Everything else we've seen him in, I'm very blonde because a lot of the yeah. characters are very similar. Maybe the problem is Stephen <laughs> Moffat and his writing, which has rubbed us the wrong way in Doctor well, Who. Well, it is. Yeah, I know. I had a hard time when Moffat took over Doctor Who, too. Um Yes, that's why I keep trying to throw Moffat in, because it's not Cumberbatch per se. He has to take what is written, but his mannerisms, the way he acts, is is contributing to the interpretation of Sherlock. And, yeah, he's just... Even when they did the Abominable Bride, when they did the 1800s with him in that dream sequence... I still felt that he was nothing like the books. He was arrogant. He talked down to Watson. He was just not patient. He's always patient in the stories. He's not flighting around being crazy, you know, and that's the reason I have a hard time with the interpretation is that he's patient. He listens to people. You know, he doesn't have a mind palace that they tried to literate. I think that is a stupid term for the record. (laughs) And, um, in the stories, he does think, but usually his thinking is done at concerts. In, mm-hmm. He goes to concerts to think because music helps him think, so he plays the violin. Or he'll smoke and sit and think a little bit, but he never sits steepled yeah. with his fingers thinking for hours on end, typically. Or or he's like staring at the fire. Yeah. Or like... Or I think there's the one where they're sleeping at like a bed and breakfast or whatever, and he's like staring at like the light yeah. at night or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like he's always kind of focused on something, mm-hmm. and that's what he uses to sort of to, to ruminate on, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's... he has to, um, when he's thinking, he probably has to have some sort of background, something to try to pinpoint what he's trying to figure out. You know? as, riv- as riveting as it sounds to watch benedict cumberbatch stare at a light if your entire frame of reference for sherlock holmes is the bbc show sherlock and you're listening to this podcast to learn more thank you for listening welcome we have some suggestions for some (laughs) other actors you could check out for other portrayals of sherlock to maybe broaden your perspective on the character a little bit phoenix who is the number five portrayal of sherlock um number five which breaks my heart um because i grew up you know, I was born to um, Peter... Well, say the name and then we can uh, launch into the background. I was born to Peter Cushing's uh, Sherlock, but I it was done in the 80s. It's Jeremy Brett. And he... If you look online, everyone says online, it's either Bernadette Cumberbatch or Jeremy Brett are the top two. Basil Rathborn is in there a little bit here and there, but those two compete for the number one spot in a lot of people's lists. And... I just, um, it really broke my heart to put him down at number five, but re-watching it, I feel like it's a precursor to what Bernadette probably watched before he did his show, because there is the impatience in Jeremy Brett, there is the coldness that I just don't read in the stories. And just for a quick reference, when roughly was Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes and how many stories did he portray or how long was his run? It was 1983 and um, 
I actually, I, they did almost all the stories. Oh. They did basically all the short stories. They did just the works. And so they did movies, many movies, which were the novels. The only thing they did not do was a study in Scarlet, which I'm surprised they did not do. I just don't know if it's just the weird break and they just didn't know how to do that. And was that the BBC that he did that with or was it some other? And, I, and sorry if you don't no, know. No, <laughs> I should have read a bit more, but it's always called the Granda, Granda series. Okay. That's the company that did it, and I don't know if it was in Britain or if it was here in America. Gotcha. But it was aired on PBS. But oh, okay. you know, um, but it was started in 1983 or 1984 when it aired. But and the Watsons and those are pretty decent. They're not bumbling idiots. They kind of help a little bit, but not to the point where I think Watson truly is the adventurer. Because you know he was a military man. He was a fighter. He was you know more i think adventurous than they like to portray him to be mm -hmm. so but you know jeremy brett has the look of holmes he has the hawkish face he has the dark hair from the illustrations and stuff he um he's tall and he does the disguises great when they do the stories when he goes into disguises i mean he disappears and he doesn't well, we didn't even mention that in the scandal of bohemia but yeah. like he dresses himself oh, as yeah. like a horse groom and like he's talking to all the horse people and getting all the gossip from the people who drive everyone around and sherlock is constantly going into disguise to gather information and that's the thing it's like to me sherlock holmes had been personable because one for him to just disappear for days to be amongst the people he had to let go of his ego, ego, personality, whatever, to be a downtrodden poor person or a homeless person or someone that's able to brush a horse. He had to know the trades to be able to get the trust of the people yeah, to, to talk be very to him. Charismatic and adaptable to yeah. survive in those situations. And so it's just, it's hard. Uh, Moffat's Sherlock did not do that at all. He did one change of the voice in Scarlet Bohemia, and to me it didn't work at all. But, you know, they didn't bring in the whole thing of the disguises in the show as much or hardly at all that I feel like Holmes kind of relies on at times. Yeah, they, they dwell a lot more on the whole, like, beautiful mind yes. kind of like, you know, let's see his his mind work and yeah and it's unfortunate because i'm sure it's a big budget show on bbs yes. and like we've seen some of the effects in the more recent doctor who like just comparing those to eccleston oh, like gosh, it's amazing yeah. what the bbc is capable of doing and what like what they can afford so like he could he could be a ghost he could blend in with all these different groups of people and they could make it look awesome and believable yeah and i was surprised they didn't have but him do more palace. disguises it was just kind of wild but um so yeah again I grew up watching those and rewatching them. I just I felt that he was a little too cold. And to be clear, and you rewatched them for this show. Like you yeah. watched a ton, ton, ton of stuff for the show. You are so well prepared for this segment. Remember when we did the top five in the Witcher show? <laughs> like top five Henry Cavill um, films, and I'm like, yeah, number five Stardust. I don't remember him being in it. It's been like years since I've seen this movie. So uh, thank you for being well prepared, love. Well, actually, Henry played Sherlock, and I I watched it at the Alona Holmes. Uh, oh yeah, the, that's a more recent. Yeah, Showtime. They have show a sister. No, Netflix, it's a Netflix. I think Netflix so, yeah, I just I 
I did not like the show. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, why can't people get Mycroft right? I just don't get it, you know? <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, I just... Number five is Jeremy Brett. Brett. Um, four, which I think a lot of people would be surprised if you've seen the show at all, but it was done in the 50s. I believe I should have looked that up clear. But um, Ronald Howard, he did a TV series. I don't want to sound like an idiot here. And I'm so worried that I am, but is that Ron Howard's dad? No, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, cut that forever and just completely restart. (laughs) Uh, he He is tall. And they do sort of a version of Watson and Sherlock meetings. And that was kind of interesting to see it. Um... But they, um, he's lighthearted. He does do the disguises, which he's a good actor. He disappears in. But what I enjoyed about him was that he does his science. So there's a lot of episodes of him doing his science work, doing different things, working with poison. Um, and he gets caught up in things. And so a constable comes to get him to go to a murder. And instead... Lestrade finds him hours later with the constable, and they're still working on this a science experiment. And the constable's oh, enjoying it, like, "Oh, what's going to happen?" It's <laughs> so fascinating the way that he drew the constable in, and like, yeah. I think that captures the thing you're talking about earlier with him being a man of the people and like being so charismatic and like people being drawn to him. Like, it, yeah. it was very believable how he wrote that constable in, and then it very funny how it paid off hours later. Yeah, and with Ronald Howard's interpretation or the show. Um, I enjoy the relationship between him and Watson. They There's a lot of comedy more in the show, which I think a lot of people have a hard time with um, between the two of them. Um, one scene is he's someone knocks at their door. He's like, oh, do you want to deduce who's at the door? And Watson's like, nope, I'm just going to turn the knob and open the door. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just, they play off each other really well. And, um, he, and actually this Watson is one of the first ones I saw um, I didn't watch a lot of it, uh, other ones, long enough. But in the first mystery that he brings Watson, the guy is holding a gun on him, and Watson immediately reacts. He shoves something at him to knock the gun out, and then he punches him. And so it shows this Watson isn't afraid to jump into the action to save Holmes. And it's really good series. It's a fun series. They're only about 26 minutes long. I think YouTube has a few of them. He's he's more physical in his research sometimes. He'll get down on the floor and, you know, move around. I mean, Jeremy Brett did it too, but I just didn't... He wasn't as physical as some of the other actors on the list were as far as... He's supposed to be a fighter. He's supposed to be a boxer and have more ability to defend himself. So, and... Yeah, I just... I would recommend it. It's black and white, though. I know sometimes people have a hard time diving into black and white stuff. Not subtitled, though. It's golden. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it's it's very fun, and I enjoy it. And I think he it's a good interpretation that people should watch. And, you know, one thing that I keep seeing in the stories is that Watson keeps referring to Holmes as Bohemian. And I looked it up. What did Bohemia mean back and in the 1800s? This is why I got so confused with the scandal of Bohemia right here. Oh, okay. It, it means gypsy. It means a lifestyle. It oh, means, okay. you yeah. know, so I think he was a gentleman in the way he was with his courtesies and everything. But I feel like he was a little bit more 
not as genuinely as the illustrations probably made him out to be. And he's more of a quirky outsider type. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think Ronald Howard shows that quite a bit. And he's holds things back a little bit like Holmes does, and then he reveals it a little bit later. But um, it's a really good interpretation. I enjoy. So number five was Jeremy Brett. Number four, Ronald Howard. Number three. Robert Downey Jr. My man! Now, is he the son of Robert Downey? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's safe to say. In ways, I really, 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 I like Guy Ritchie films, but I really enjoyed what they did with Sherlock. I mean, I think they really looked at the art. I think uh, the paperwork, uh, the works, did their research because... I did research, and boxing back then was bare-knuckle matches, and it sometimes lasts four hours, so the scene in the first movie of him bare-knuckle fighting is, you know, accurate, you know, and they gave him more of a bohemian look to him, you know, he wore a suit per se, but he was always, I think wearing other pieces of clothing he was wearing watson's jacket one time and watson got pissed at him and he wanted his jacket back and uh, holmes like well it doesn't fit you and watson's like well i don't care i want it back and he takes and throws it out the carriage (laughs) so it's such a funny little joke (laughs) it's just i really enjoy their version because of the relationship especially between watson and holmes because to me they are showing what two men living together can do just i hear stories about you know you guys with the frats you know living the crazy stories that can come up when you know yeah there's a lot of tom naked in those stories (laughs) (laughs) let's keep those ones off the air no, just yeah, just the ones where I'm naked. Apparently, yeah, well, you were naked. You just pulled your testicle out. No, well, it's stretched just, it an incredible amount. I think you know just what you can get up to living together and just sharing a space together and the camaraderie that these two had and the comfortability. That's one thing I find that's missing in a lot of these interpretations is the comfortability between the two because, you know. Watson is lounging on a chair waiting for Holmes to come back. You know, he, he, where other pe- other shows, it's just prim and proper sitting on a couch. You know, it's just, in ways, I feel like I should have done it higher, but. You were really torn on this I, one. I was. And so, just thinking about the interpretation that was done on Sherlock, um, not the relationship between him and Watson, I think it it's close to the character on paper because he is lighthearted. He has the tool of the trades. He has the things to try to help him unlock a door. He has different things to use to try to do the research. He goes into disguise. He goes into disguise. He licks the um, rock. The sandstone slab. To figure out what it was that glued it, you know. So he, they showed him digging in and... um the thing that you brought up was kind of interesting with this movie. The first one was that they kind of poke fun at Conan Doyle's. Well, yeah, uh, I thought it was fascinating because there's kind of a supernatural bent to the movie. There's there's Lord Blackwood and he's doing all these supernatural things and he's bending people to his will and this and that. And at the end of the movie, you find out that it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all it's all debunked. It's all disproved. Well, Conan Doyle's. Uh, 
own personal religions he was a spiritualist and he believed in the supernatural he believed in these things so i think it was just a masterful script in the way i think guy Ritchie wrote the film it was masterful how he took sherlock holmes and stayed true to sherlock holmes but also injected conan doyle's beliefs and kind of shoved those two elements together i thought it was just fascinating after learning more about conan doyle's yeah beliefs. and i think robert downey jr's um version of sherlock um I find the way he does his deductive reasoning when he tells people, it feels more natural. Where some of the other shows, it's like almost being lectured to or being, you know, looked down upon because, oh, you didn't see this. You kind of, you know, so. You dumb dumb. (laughs) (laughs) So, I, you know, I feel like it's a little bit more natural in the sense of how they wrote it out and um, the betrayal. It's hard to separate Sherlock from Sherlock and Watson because the yeah. two are intertwined. Yeah. They like, are. Watson is a part of Sherlock. And I know you're trying to be very focused on just the Sherlock. I like Martin Freeman a lot as Sherlock in the Benedict Cumberbatch series. Uh, Sherlock. I like, sorry, I like him a lot as Watson. But the relationship as it's portrayed in the Guy Ritchie films, particularly in this first film, is incredible. And I think yeah. they nailed that aspect of the source material. And just kudos to Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law for pulling that off because they were awesome together. So does, does Robert Downey Jr. actually come off as smart as Sherlock Holmes? Because my big knock of his portrayal as Tony Stark is he says a lot of smart things. But it doesn't really ever come off like he actually understands what he's saying. To, he he's much more believable as the playboy part of Tony Stark than he is of uh, actually like the sort of the the mental aspects of it or the the knowledgeable aspects of it. And granted, you see it some like especially in the first movie and the the third Iron Man when everything's taken away. Um, so do they do a good job or does he do a good job in Sherlock of actually like? it really seeming like he's he is like the smartest man in the room and he is the one that's figuring this all out he wears some dumb glasses <laughs> i guess that is maybe why a good point because i didn't quite bring him up to number one is that maybe that it, i'm trying to figure out why i didn't put him at number one because of the watson relationship but yeah it's Maybe not. Maybe he wasn't quite as it, believable it was as the natural, ultimate brain. But I just don't know if you think of him as the smartest man in the room per okay. se. So, um, but he knew his stuff. But yeah. it's just yeah. And interesting tidbit: um, Jude Law actually first acting job was in Jeremy Brett's Sherlock Holmes TV show. He was in one of the episodes. And man, was he baby-faced, but... <laughs> he looks like a completely different person. Yeah, so it's just kind of fun uh, twist around that um, he's actually Watson in the movies. And so that's kind of fun. But I thoroughly enjoy it. I would recommend anyone watching them because they are good interpretations. I mean, there's a lot more action than people are comfortable with. And there's a lot more... F- physicality which i enjoy because it shows that holmes is a boxer and he can defend himself and fight and and that's what i enjoyed about the interpretation pluses and minus minus irene adler plus it's played by a mean girl so (laughs) kind of evens out and you can't have a guy Ritchie movie if there's not like some violence in it right i mean there has to be some some punching and fighting well they just make it believable of this sherlock 
is able to do this, you know. And pulling on the Guy Ritchie thread for just a second, I think it's interesting that I think it's an awesome interpretation of Sherlock Holmes and it's a great story, but I don't think it's the best way that he pulls all the threads together. Like thinking of Lockstock and uh, there was at least one of his other films. Snatch. Where probably snatch where there were so many separate threads and they come together so masterfully and i don't feel like sherlock necessarily did that there was a nice mystery at the heart of it and it all came together well but it wasn't like eight different threads with eight different unique characters no it wasn't definitely like his traditional great um, film though yeah also go back and listen to the guy richie episode (laughs) everyone on earth all right uh let's pause Um, and i'll go do that um for number two um you know, because I'm just trying to watch all these Sherlock's coming up. And Ian Richardson, I was surprised. Um, never watched it before. And just watching the first time with new eyes, it was... I thoroughly, really, really enjoyed his two movies that he did. He only did two movies. He did Hounds of the Baskerville and he did Sign of Four. And they have him more of a gentleman in it, but he's lighthearted he kind of jokes around with watson a little bit and he is a shakespearean actor and so when he does the disguises it's just incredible to watch him you know transition from the disguise into sherlock but like in the sign of four he's this old seaman and he walks into the into their apartments and watson's like well holmes is not here and he's like well Holmes told me to wait, and I'm going to wait. And Watson is just all put out, and and he just keeps rolling with it. And it's a great scene between the actors, and it just he does an incredible job. And especially in The Hound, he does it. He plays a gypsy out on the end. He's out there, and he's interacting with the townspeople as a gypsy. So I feel like whoever did those two with Ian Richardson's kind of went further along with the disguises to show what Holmes had the potential or was hinted at him being gone for days and disappearing Mm -hmm. and trying to get more information. And so I really enjoyed seeing that aspect. And and about when were these released? Like 70s, 80s, I think maybe the 70s. I can't remember. But Ian Richardson, also interesting tidbit, he plays Dr. Bell in a TV show of Dr. Bell and and Doyle, of them doing mysteries together while Doyle was working for him. And so it's a fun little uh, show, Mysteries. But but his Watson's okay. I wouldn't say it's the best Watson, but he... um, his deduct the way he does his deductions too isn't like you're being lectured at he's more of a conversationalist and he's patient with people he's again just more personable i guess in a sense and he is more uh physical in the sense of fighting because he actually fights the hound (laughs) in the hounds of baskerville they actually have him fight it because somehow something happens and the hound jumps on him. So he's actually, you see him in the movie trying to get the hound off of him. And so... He's like, it's just a dog rubbing some goo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But um, I really thoroughly enjoyed the two movies that they did. And it's... um, And in the sign, the four, too, when they're walking with the dog, they start in the countryside and they follow the scent all the way through to the in the cities and stuff and you see them 
changing from walking to riding some carriage wagon. <laughs> and Holmes is still just talking about different things <laughs> to Watson. It just it felt natural and it just from the storybooks. So um honorable mention, I guess I would say Johnny Lee Miller. I My man. I wish I could watch more of him, but he I I enjoy his version of Sherlock. I mean, it's hard to do Sherlock now because Almost every detective out there is somewhat based off of Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. you know, and it's hard to... Plus technology. And technology. And so it's like, how do you do a Holmes in the modern setting? And I know that the Moffat tried to answer the question and he made him this... People... It's just so weird. Like, the top searches is Sherlock autistic. It's like, really? Or is Sherlock... A psychopath it's like he's not but because the show did so well and you know people mm-hmm. are googling these things where i think elementary read a book people <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to a podcast now read a book <laughs> well i think elementary did a little bit better job of trying to do a modern version of johnny lee miller and giving him the nuances of sherlock there's aspects of the show that i really hate you know Irene Adler, but they did an interesting twist with it. She ends up being Moriarty. Um, she was played by a Game of Thrones actress. Old, yeah. What's her name? Oh. Um, that one, huh? Yeah. Marjorie Tyrell. Oh, seriously? Yeah. yeah. Oh, weird. Okay. Um, but, you know, they, the relationship between him and Watson, a female Watson, is really well done and you see him trying to teach her his methods and her working with him and it's a good relationship that really develops and people have talked about if you keep watching the series it develops more and more and it doesn't quite become a romantic love it's more a true love between two friends which the story is about you know camaraderie yeah and so like burns in me (laughs) but yeah it's I think, Burns, I would push you in front of a bullet for me, man. <laughs> but I think I'd be pushed too. <laughs> I think they did a great job because you know they threw some nuanced things in where, like, in the background, he has this thing and it has hundreds of locks. And every once in a while, Watts will make a comment. Okay, those are different. Why are they? I arranged them according to the year they are made, or you know, just little things they added. And one of my funniest scenes is that Holmes was talking on the phone and he slams it down. It's one of the old phones. And rotary phone. You did a rotary. Hand that <laughs> rotary phone. And she's like, where the did that come from? He's like, well, I knew I was going to have to hang up on a lot of people today. So I pulled this out and was just <laughs> slamming the phone because he was getting pissed. But, you know, it's just. That's funny. It, they did interesting things like that that I think could be believable for a modern day Sherlock. So it's a really good show. Yeah. Downside hour long episodes yeah. and like twenty some episodes per season. Yeah. There are a lot of seasons. So yeah. I enjoy Johnny Lee Miller a lot, but it is a commitment to watch it. It is. And that's part of the problem. I think we made it through three seasons together. Two for sure. Yeah. Good show. It is. Um number one really surprised yeah, me. But it Cumberbatch, so yes. we can continue <laughs> on with our next segment. Yeah. Burns is gonna go home now. <laughs> No, he doesn't even make the list. Um, no, I was really surprised by this because I wouldn't even think. But watching the movies, 
Basil Rathbone actually, I think, is does an incredible job as Sherlock Holmes. He he withholds things, but he's you know one step ahead of everyone. I mean, he. It's weird because when I first started watching it, it's like, okay, why are there cars here? And it turns out it was too expensive for them to place Basil Rathborn in the 1800s. They just couldn't afford the sets, the costumes and everything. So you're actually watching like the first modern day for back then, Sherlock. And what uh, time frame was it again, roughly? It was in the late, um, it was in about the 40s and... uh, think maybe towards the end of i should have looked that out but i know if you ever wondered what would sherlock done during world war ii well they've done two movies with him dealing with nazis sneaking into switzerland and dealing with the gestapo in disguise and basil rathborn he does disguises i didn't realize at the beginning one of the shows was like wait a minute i didn't realize that was him but he was a good actor. He disappeared in the disguise that he had to be. And, you know, Moriarty keeps showing up still in the movies. So every movie I watch, there was something about Moriarty. So that was kind of a little old <laughs> watching a lot of Moriarty stuff. But he was, at the end of each thing, he always had a certain line that was... You know, elementary, my dear Watson. No, it felt like it came from the books, you know, just some, you know, and he was, I think, a very well done Sherlock. His Watson was horrible, and (laughs) his Watson was a bumbling idiot, bumbling idiot, would trip over things, not pay attention to things, screw up things, and and people think that that Watson kind of ruined it took a long time for people to finally bring Watson to where he is with Jude Law you know it's just it took a long time to bring Watson to his true but I think if you watch Ronald Howard you'll see a better Watson about the same time as Basil Rathborn so but he's always one step ahead of everyone he um puts himself in daring situations he pretended to be hypnotized and was walking on the, along the ledge of a building and was about to step off when the police finally showed up to capture the criminal. So he's like Sherlock. He puts himself in the dangerous situation to get the criminal. He um, is willing to take the extra step. And Moriarty caught him and was draining his blood out slowly. And he laid there and let it happen until the police came. So, I mean... I think you should watch him, and he's a great interpretation. Lighthearted, he's kind to Watson, he has a friendship with him, he's kind to the police, even though he can view them as a little bit of idiots, but he's not, you know, in their face about it. He's, you know, more of a gentleman in that sense. And, you know, it's just... It's hard to put together the words, but I just was surprised to find that I think Basil Rathborn is probably one of the top interpretations of Sherlock. I'm willing to bet there isn't another person in North America <laughs> who's watched as much Sherlock as you have over the last six weeks. No, so. well, actually, there is someone. She did. <laughs> I found her list. She started like at 101. She watched every single like cartoon, anime, oh, wow. everything, and. One thing that I really wish I could have watched was two shows is on HBO. There's a new show from Japan called Mrs. 
Sherlock, and I guess people say it's very close to the books, but it's a female Sherlock and a female Watson. <laughs> well, honey, we leech off of Burns and HBO. <laughs> we can watch that. And I just didn't have the time to watch it. Thanks, and, Daddy Burns. <laughs> and they, Thanks, at and for free. So. Oh. <laughs> and um, the other one was a Russian show done in Russia um, in the 80s around Jeremy Brett, and a lot of people say that um he is actually those works were very close to the works and they said it's pretty funny at the beginning of the scene when holmes comes home in disguise watson thought he was a criminal they threw that in the show with the first episode when he was doing these detective trying to figure out what he was doing he's like he thought he was a criminal so it would have been fun to watch it It was just i couldn't find it anywhere so but well there are no flaws in our list if you'd like to share your positive reaffirmations, tweet your thoughts at Tom Sidlogic OIO on Twitter. That's at Tom Sidlogic OIO on Twitter. Next up, we're going to welcome in front of the show Dr. Kelsey Camille from Premier Health in Coon Rapids. And joining us now is friend of the show, Dr. Kelsey Camille from Premier Health in Coon Rapids. Welcome to the show, Dr. Camille. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming back again. Today, we are going to talk about physical fitness as it relates to mental acuity. So today I wanted to talk about physical fitness um, in regards to how it can actually improve your gaming performance, whether it be on um, computer games, um, tabletop games, uh, console games. Uh, It's not something that's actually uh, addressed a lot when it comes to a lot of the um, elite pro gamers um, outside of what we typically think of with, you know, sports teams in regards to, like, football or soccer. Um, well, it almost seems counterintuitive. As somebody who's played games largely my entire life, playing games is a very sedentary activity. So I it never occurred to me that you need physical activity to balance out that sedentary nature. It might not seem like it actually does. However, when you're physically active and you get your body moving, it's actually able to um, help to clear your, your headspace and help you to think quicker, um, which is actually going to help you to perform better when you're playing your games. Um, it can actually also help to develop the fast twitch muscles, which are going to help you to respond better, um, respond quicker, and get more kills ultimately. What kind of activities do you recommend and how much activity does a person need to optimize their gaming? Uh, the re- or the activities that I recommend are any activity that's going to get you moving and get your heart rate up. And ideally, if you can do anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour, um, three to five times a week of any activity that's going to get your heart rate up, that's really what we're looking for. 30 plus minutes of moderate activity. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for stopping by, Dr. Camille. If you'd like to learn more or book an appointment, visit PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. For our final topic today, we are going to discuss Sherlock Holmes consulting detective Jack the Ripper and West End Adventures. Designed by Suzanne Goldberg, Gary Grady, and Jerome Roper, and published by Asmodee in 2016. Interesting fact about the designers, their only other design credits are the other Sherlock consulting detective games. Interesting. This game has a Board Game Geek rating of 7.7. That's pretty good. Yeah, it is. Board Game Geek, yeah. Yeah, it's higher than uh, a lot of the other games that we've played. Yeah. Certainly than Horizon. (laughs) In Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective Jack the Ripper and West End Adventures, you and up to seven friends try to out-deduce the world's greatest detective in a self-directed, choose-your-own-adventure murder mystery. You start by reading a scenario from the book, and then you take turns chasing down leads. 
At the end, you answer a series of questions to determine your score and to see if you've outfoxed the Master Sleuth. We played two games of this together, just the three of us. The first adventure had us trying to determine who is trying to kill a doctor. He comes to Sherlock Holmes and says he suspects he's being murdered. He provides a short list of suspects. The question I have is how long did it take us to get into the flow? Joey, you are the resident OIO board game expert. You've played everything under the sun at least once. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that, but I've played a lot of games, yes. How long did it take you to get into the rhythm of this mystery? Um, it, it took a little bit. Um, so one of the things was the, the rule book, I don't know... It, it like explain it, it like describes how the game's supposed to work, right? But it was really hard to conceptualize from reading the rule book, like how to actually like approach it. And so we'll boil this down to its simplest essence. This is a cooperative choose your own adventure. Yeah. Like there are a series of things that you can do. Like there are victory conditions, which are frankly impossible. <laughs> yes. So if you go into this game approaching it just as a choose your own adventure that you can do with your friends, that's kind of like the mindset that you have to be into. Yeah. And so like, I think the thing that was difficult was we jumped into it and it, it took a bit, it took a while to grasp onto like, how do we, like, where do we go? What do we do? Like it, it, it's sometimes like what we've talked about with open world games before where I could go anywhere, but I don't know where to go. Analysis paralysis kind of. Mm -hmm. um, and so especially like the first one that we played, it was a little difficult to say, okay, well, what are we actually supposed to do here? So you read your scenario. You In this specific case, you have a short list of suspects. You have a giant map of London with all these different locations marked down, and it's broken into, I think, five segments. You have a list of possible informants, which could include everyone from Mycroft Homes to coroners to criminologists to newspaper reporters to... The, 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 uh, the cabbie stand where you can get information of the comings and goings of people. Yeah, and it's just like, it's all these things you can do. Go nuts. Yep. And, and so it, it was it was hard to get an idea of, like, where do we start? Like, who do we even approach here? Where, where's What makes the most sense to start at? But, like, as we got into it and as we started to get into the flow, we started like, oh, okay, I want to, like, track down this sort of path. And then I, I think one of the interesting things that it does is it starts to, it starts to open up, like sort of side things and you don't know if it's a red herring or if it's connected in some way, shape or form. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the aspects of it that, that helps to draw you in a little bit as you start to read through these snippets. And I know you weren't on this show, but in the Batman show, we talked about Gotham city under siege. And one of the challenges with that game and other games like this, when you have the full set of tools from the very beginning, they're like, there's no onboarding. There's no gradual progression of what you can do. It's like, well, Here's a giant list of things you can do. Go nuts. Uh -huh. And like I know that people love that approach. Like Brian jumps into my mind and how he loves Legend of Zelda um, Breath of the Wild because it's like, oh, here's your sword. Go nuts. Go figure everything out. I am not that type of gamer. I, I like to have a framework to work within, and this was a big frame. It took me a while to feel comfortable trying to navigate this first mystery. Feeny, what were your thoughts on this first case? Um. Yeah, I would say the same thing. It was kind of... Uh, just looking at it when you guys pulled it out and laid it in front of us, it was just kind of like overwhelming. And it was very fascinating because they 
the story that you get isn't very long and not a lot of details, but sometimes you got to really pay attention because there might be detail there. And like, like you for s- instance, on one investigate, one lead that we chased down had the maiden name of somebody. Yeah. And like, it's just, you know, it's buried in with a lot of other stuff. And it's like that maiden name was very, very important. And yep. we just missed it. Yeah. And that's on us. That's our failure. But uh, not being familiar with how crime was solved in those days, yes. we were at a real disadvantage. Like, it's just like, okay, well, here's a huge list of things we could do. What what makes sense? Yep. And I think that yeah. worked against us, especially in that first case. Like, we weren't very efficient in our movements. We found out that Sherlock solved it in six moves. We had <laughs> at least 60. We had to have had 60 moves, right? <laughs> it wasn't quite 60, but it was, yeah. it was probably at least three times of what uh, Sherlock did. Yeah, I sure think we each... went around nine eight or nine times we at least had six moves a piece yeah well it's just you know like you said it's just not knowing but once you get going it's like oh wait the cab drivers that drive everyone around yeah they probably have some information yeah. or the newspaper we figured out to go to the newspaper but we did the one thing that we thought would give us information yeah. is the autopsy yep. and it's just like nope the body's not here yet yep. and that's all you get it's like oh uh, you're a supposed to help us yeah but... right. so that's a waste of one of these six moves that Sherlock yeah made. no exactly this game is largely self-paced and sometimes nebulous in what to do next Bernsey did you enjoy the core investigative gameplay I thought it was great it took a while to get into it but I think once we started to go um like you know it started to click and we each had things that we wanted to do and I think there was at one point it, we listed off like four or five different yeah. strands that we <laughs> wanted to try to go to and it's like okay well let's do this one first and then we get another little nugget yeah. and so it keeps wanting to sort of pull you into that and I think especially that first game we really just kind of went with it and followed things down mm-hmm. different paths and then when it would hit a dead end it's just like okay well what else do we have to circle back to yeah um and so and I, then when we were at all dead ends it's like well what the heck do we do now yeah yeah i think one of the things that was difficult was not knowing for sure what all we had to answer yeah made it difficult to know whether we were ready or not to go to the solution and this first case in particular is interesting in that regard um because well you play through the mystery you're trying to figure out how many moves to figure it out but we we know that we'll have to read a series of questions at the end and we don't know what the questions are right. and so and do we say oh we're good enough i think we can answer them or do we need to keep going not knowing for sure and then in this first case there was a second mystery that was completely unrelated yes. to the murder yep. we were trying to prevent and so we kind of stumbled across this and it's like, does this matter? It yeah. is not like, are yeah. we just burning turns trying to figure out this thing? And we wound up right. chasing a lot of it because we were having fun and it was interesting. Yeah. You have to try to pursue, but it was a fascinating structure. I really liked how freeform this game was. It was very conversational. Like we could talk about things. We could de- discuss things, digest them, debate where to go next. But it was a much more social experience than most board games are. Like, yeah. Bernsey, thinking back to Horizon, which we played for the show recently, like, that was, you know, look at my hand of cards. This is how I'm going to maximize my damage and grab the most loot. It's like, yes. I had no care what you were doing. I had no interest in talking to Patrick because I hate his face. Yeah. <laughs> and this game is just a complete 180, and it's a really fascinating social thing to do. Well, because you're, you're, you're working entirely together, whereas in Horizon, you're working together as long as you kill the monster, but then you really don't want anybody else to do as, to do as good as you, right? And it's one of those things also where if you're last, 
you're still going to have something that you're going to be able to go find out. Whereas in Horizon, if you're last, you're boned that turn. And you just got to hope that you go a little bit earlier next time so you can actually do something. Whereas here, there was always something to do, um, which I think is awesome. Like, since it's more narrative-based, though, mm-hmm. like you have to be in the mood to play something like that. Um, if you want to chuck dice and like yeah. and kill dudes, yeah. <laughs> this is not going to be your cup of tea. Right. Like Patrick, I have a hard time seeing you enjoying this game at all. And in, in some, also like the other thing with some cooperative groups, like if, if there's people that tend to strong arm other people, like this could be maybe a rough game for that yeah. because then if they're like that more alpha personality, they could be like, trying to push other people to do things on their turn when maybe they want to like go after a different thread or something Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, And so that's one other thing where like some of those horror stories you hear about some co-op games where it's really just one or two people piloting everybody else to do different things because that's how they want to do it. And that's how they win. You know, Mm -hmm. that's one thing that you'd want to watch out for with this maybe too. It would be fascinating to see Casey's big brain process this game (laughs) because I, I criticize Casey often for being a deep thinker and for taking longer than I feel his turns need to go in many games in this game. Maybe that deep thinking would be a big asset because he'd be like processing the whole time. And like, he wouldn't necessarily be holding us back from doing our things. No, that's true. And I think some of the most fun things about this was like when we would get a clue or like multiple clues and we'd be like, Oh, so I wonder if this is this and this. And like, and then at the end you could be like, oh, I was right about one of the eight things I said. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it, was, it was like one fraction of something. So yeah. I was right. <laughs> That's yeah. generally how I approach mystery things in general. <laughs> it's a numbers game, Burns. It's just a number game. Hey, that was me too. I did the same thing. So. <laughs> For the first case that we played, we found most of the solutions, but it took about a thousand more moves than Sherlock. In order to win this game... Sherlock scores 100 points. You answer a series of questions, and if you take more moves than Sherlock, you start losing points for each additional move. So you need to solve more than the base mystery, which is how you get above those 100 points. But if you take too long, you're going to lose. Yeah. Burns, are those satisfying victory conditions? So, like, the one thing I'll say... No, no, they're not. No, they're not. (laughs) I alluded to the rule book earlier. Like, it wasn't... The scoring aspect of it wasn't completely clear to me Mm -hmm. in the rule book. So... I didn't really know that we were going to be penalized if we did too many extra moves. Um, I I think the win condition is very hard. Um, And I also think that if you're playing towards the win condition, I think it actually ruins the game. Yeah, because it's so much fun chasing down all of those leads and like, the fun is in like interacting with your friends and yep. like deciding where to go next and like reading the story and discovering the story together. Like there's very few experiences where you get to like share a media together. Like if we're yeah. watching a show together, you know, that's nice. We can have a shared experience that way. But this is so immersive. You're all taking turns reading parts of the book and like mm-hmm. you're all so invested in the story. I think I think you just have to take the victory conditions out of it. Like I think the victory conditions yeah, sure. Everyone wants to win a game, but yeah. in this instance, it takes away from the experience so much. Vini, you love cooperative games. Yes, I do. <laughs> like you prefer cooperative games over competitive, and I don't think it's particularly close. Was this a satisfying experience for you? Did you care that it's essentially impossible for us to win the game? No, actually, I didn't really care. I didn't really realize that, you know, until we were figuring out the points. Like, oh, really? <laughs> oh, good. We scored negative eighty yeah. too. Great. <laughs> But no, it just it sort of reminded me from my childhood. Um, uh, Sherlock Holmes, actually, the mystery puzzles my mom would get. You would put to get, read the story as a group, 
And then you put the puzzle together, and then the puzzle itself has all the clues for you to figure out what the actual solution is. And it sort of reminded me a little bit about that. And we have a couple of those. We we need to do those. (laughs) (laughs) But, no, I really enjoyed it because it is fun to try to be a detective yourself Mm -hmm. to figure out where they're going with this. Um, They give you a lot of ambiguity in the story and then trying to figure out. And it gives you a lot of... um, freedom in how you're thinking mm-hmm. if that's the right way to put it because yep. you know rules are rules but this game allows you to kind of think creatively you know like the first mystery it's like it had to be the twins it's just like the whole <laughs> twin storyline came in you know it's just it's just you have to think creatively and that's kind of a cool aspect to the game where a lot of games it's like you have to do this and this and this. And yeah, it's more about creative thinking than about the rules. It's yeah. so there's so much freedom in this game to approach it mm-hmm. as long as you don't care about outthinking Sherlock. And yeah. so I think the other interesting thing to mention is that this was the third game in the series. Okay. Um and uh, I don't know if the other ones did this. I don't think so though. But actually, the first four scenarios are basically you're trying to track down and catch Jack the Ripper. Okay. And and, and we didn't skip those. We didn't play those because the the rule book actually said that you should start with number the fifth one, which isn't part of the campaign mm-hmm. to try to catch Jack the Ripper if you haven't played the game first to get a better understanding of how it works. Because um, my under the way it seems is that that's actually supposed to be a little bit more difficult um though i think it's also a little bit more streamlined as to like what like who you could talk to and what you're trying to do um a little bit it's because it's a smaller area of london that you're investigating it would be interesting to see how those four tie together yeah we played a second case in this game as well this one was more of a standard like murder mystery type thing there is a murder that happens, there's a person that's arrested, and you're tasked with kind of figuring out what really happened, if they got the right guy, and all the other different pieces of it. I'm trying to be very generic so that we remain (laughs) spoiler-free in case someone wants to go back and play these cases, because as much fun as it is to experience it, I don't know how much fun it would be if you already know what the outcome is. Right, right. Probably so, yeah. So, keeping it very general, what are your impressions from the second case? It was... Definitely a little more information, but again, since we knew we had to do so many steps to... And in this one specifically, we knew that how fast Sherlock works. Like We had an idea of how many moves it was going to take him to solve, and we were much more cognizant of it, which I think detracted from the experience. I think it did, and and we got to the part where the theater was, and it turns out they had a little caveat because... There was like six people there that we could talk to. I think it was closer to a dozen. There were a ton of yeah. people yeah, in that theater. Yeah, and they said that if you read that paragraph, it counts as a... Um, yeah. A, as a... So basically yeah. each person counts as a lead. lead. So yeah. that's like one of your like however many you needed to get to, to in order to beat Sherlock. Right? Yeah. So we found out where the theater was. We went to the theater. We figured something out there and then we left the theater trying to move more quickly than Sherlock. Yep. I guess in this instance maybe it was helpful to have those moves because otherwise we would have just talked to everyone in the theater. We would have read that entire book yeah. like yeah. cover to cover. So maybe maybe the victory conditions helped us in this particular yeah. case but also rushed us. It's yeah. like I, I know I was pushing us to try to solve those questions <laughs> before we were ready. Part well, of it was because I was tired but part of it was because I desperately wanted to try to beat Sherlock yeah. and Ultimately, we really struggled with the questions at the end of the, the well, second piece. The other piece was um, 
it's just from our experience from the first mystery, it's like, well, should we go talk to the people about the autopsy? Because last time we did it, they said, oh, the body's not here. You know, so we're just like... Wasted move. Wasted move. Yeah. Where I think I, it turned out... And again, the not knowing how crimes were solved in this yeah. era worked yeah. against us because there was a, there was a law enforcement official that was crucial to solving this case. And like if we had just yeah. known like how things worked, I, th- yeah. I feel like we would have talked to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that kind of vexed me a little bit with this one was that like because the setup of it, because it's not ruining it if it's the setup of the case, right? Mm. Is that there's this play mm-hmm. and. But they don't tell you where the play is. And oh, that's so it's right. Like, yeah. I want to go to the theater. Like, I want to go to the theater, but you didn't tell me where it's at. And I have to go try to figure Like, So you open up the directory and there's like six theaters in London. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. great. And so like, that's the one thing that was a little bit of like, all right, come on. Like, do you I, really need to make part of the mystery us trying to figure out where this play is being held that... Like, literally, all the other characters knew. They just Including didn't tell us that. One of Sherlock's friends is in the show. Yes. Yeah. And, like, he's with us. He's with us. He's, like, traveling with us. Yeah. He couldn't tell us that it's the Drury Theater? <laughs> exactly. Higgins, <laughs> WTF, bro. <laughs> and so so that was one of the things that, that, that vexed me a little bit with it. But uh, uh, it's I, I still think it's it's interesting to, to try to figure figure that out. Um, and figure out where it's going. Well, let's talk about the strengths of this game system as a whole. For me, it is the conversational nature. Like there, board gaming is a social thing for me. And for some of my friends, it's the only time that I see them. And yeah. like, it's such an important part of like my social, uh, group with my friends that I, that's why I love board games. And this is a different type of that with it being so conversational and so much interaction between the people. I love that aspect of this game. Yeah, yeah, I think that is that is the strong point. And I mean, granted, like growing up, I loved like the choose your own adventure novels. I um, did too, and like I never thought I'd experience that with another person. Yeah, let alone <laughs> my wife and my podcast wife. <laughs> well, one thing I would say, because we missed it the first time, after you answer the questions for your solution, like there's another page after that that explains how Sherlock That's it, right, it, yeah. it's actually the actual conclusion of Sherlock saying what happened and then it tells you what leads Sherlock followed from point A to point whatever. Yeah. Uh and we didn't do that the first time and so we were just sort of left how the hell did we do this in this many <laughs> uh, so then once we read that the second time it's like oh okay that actually all kind of makes sense. Uh, and okay, so, so, so don't don't miss that part. <laughs> we have a situation going on right here. My cat was just in his litter box, and now he insists on being on my lap. And like you can see his popper right there. That's kitty litter on my pants. <laughs> Middle of the podcast, the cat's like, yeah, this is a good time to take a duker and jump on my dude. <laughs> um, yeah, I would have to say the strengths is you know if you have a group of people that like to, well, actually, in ways. It's a kind of nice palate cleanser in ways. Mm-hmm. If you have a group of people and you've been playing some hardcore games, which you guys do play, or these, um, like the Song of Ice and Fire that you probably have yeah. with all the miniatures, and you need something light between the next game you guys are about to delve into, I feel like it could be a nice game for people to just sort of relax, 
sort of talk amongst each other mm-hmm. to you, uh, before you dive into something more. You think Wilson would be into it? Probably. I, I would think he would get into it. I think it's 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 also one of those things where, um, so it says it's ninety plus minutes. It's definitely on the north side of that ninety plus yeah. minutes, especially if if like people haven't played it before. Yeah, mm-hmm. first game definitely took us yeah. a long time. I, yeah, I didn't pay attention to the clock in the second one, but it had to have been much shorter. Yeah, it was much shorter. Um, but then again, I think we were also like pushing it a lot too. I think the game is much better if you set aside like a couple of hours and mm-hmm. just say, we're going to relax and just play through this. Yeah. Um, because then you can just sit down and enjoy it. Don't think you're going to beat Sherlock. Yes. I don't think anybody's <laughs> ever going to beat Sherlock. Or or more so, I think the more fun way is to see like how close do you get. Like yeah. in the first game, until we had to start de- detracting things, like we were actually right around, we were like at 95 we did re- points. We did really good on the questions. And then yeah. we had to subtract everything yeah. down yeah. to like 30. No, we were definitely over 100 points. We were over yeah. the Sherlock score. It just took us so many moves that we didn't even figure it because yeah. we weren't counting them. We were just going wherever the wind blew. Yeah. It, so I, it. it I, blows I do, a lot. I do think that that's a more fun way to to approach it. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, I, I think I think... As, as far as like the points and, and just solving a mystery in general, it is, is fun. fun. Yeah. Like it's, Super satisfying. Yeah. Endorphin rush of like, yeah. And yeah. like, there's an envelope that tells you if you're right or not. Exactly. I appreciate that. Like yeah. there's no, there's no gray area. Either you figured it out or you don't. And you'll know at the end of the session. Right. Yeah. Well, Burns, what were the weaknesses of this game? So kind of like we alluded to with the beginning of how you just didn't know where to go. Like some of the things are very obtuse. It's not super clear, like who's going to be able to tell you what type of thing. And part of that, like you said, Tom, is that you don't necessarily know how things were solved back then. But then other aspects of it, it's just like, I, like it's hard to know necessarily what's going to be important or not. Um, and so that can be a little bit of a downfall of it. I think the other thing is between the two scenarios that we played, there was a very distinct imbalance as to what aspects. So you have all these different tools. You have the back of the rule book, which gives you all your informants that you typically use in a case or that Sherlock typically uses to solve a case. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have the various leads that you're given from the first uh, scenario. And then you have a newspaper from the day that uh, gives yeah. you information within it. In the first scenario... Like, there was lots of information that we could kind of pull from that yeah, to, like, yeah, give us right. direction to go in. Like, there was a doctor that we had to talk to, like, the second crime that we had no idea we were supposed to solve. Yep. That was a little too in the paper. Yep. And then the second one... That matter. I don't think there was anything in the paper that actually led us in any direction, which I get... It's, it's maybe good to spice that up, but it's like you're giving us all these tools. There should be, like, something that we can latch on to, mm-hmm. I think, from that... Um, I mean, it's pretty frustrating. I read that entire newspaper in <laughs> case two. Like, I read the entire thing, and like, I was ignoring you guys for a section of. I'm like, is there anything useful in here? <laughs> well, okay, guys, what did I miss? There's nothing in this paper, and I was right. <laughs> and so, so that's it's just weird. And, and granted, I know because as you go through, um, you have access to all the older papers too. So I'm curious if you do some of the later cases, 
how much of the items are alluded to in those first couple of newspapers that oh, we get. True. Um, so it could be that's maybe setting up a bunch of things for the next case or one of the ones later. Well, thank goodness, because you need more potential leads in this game. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's just uh, Holmes does hold on to his newspapers because he does clip out stuff and he does keep records of stuff. So it's thematically very fitting. Yeah. <coughs> Final thoughts and takeaways on Sherlock Holmes consulting detective Jack the Ripper and the West End Mysteries. Did I nail that title without looking at it? Yes, I am so smart. Feeney, your final thoughts and takeaways on the first Sherlock game we have played together as a couple. Yeah, I guess it is. Or as Um, a throuple. A throuple. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. Again, we've touched on a lot of the good points about it. And I really enjoy the cooperativeness of the game. And I like those games. And it, I love mystery, so it was fun to have those two together in a game. And so it's something I'd love to play again. The Jack the Ripper series might be fun to see how mm-hmm. they all tie together. And, and you mentioned potentially getting a copy of this game for ourselves to play with your family. I think that would be very interesting. I think your family so. doesn't play a lot of games. Yeah, it'll be interesting, especially my mom. She's always ruins movies for people because she always <laughs> guess what's going to be the plot or what's going to happen so it could be a lot of fun with your family it would be a train wreck with my family <laughs> like, someone could get into it but i think yeah. the rest of my family would be so add and bored that it would yeah. be just a miserable experience for everyone involved Bird, yeah. do you want to come with for that one hey <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm always up to play games <laughs> uh and there's like, I think there's three or four Sherlock specific ones. And then the most recent one of these games is, um, is like Cthulhu investigation based. Um, seeing as how Asmodee, Fantasy Flight, that's yeah. all the rage, you know? No, it um, is, yeah. And so, so yeah, there's lots of variety. I could see them maybe continuing to spin more things out. I mean, they've, they've made three or four or five versions of this type of game so they must sell fairly well yeah um i maybe they do maybe they don't it's got to be a cheap game to make in the grand so. scheme of board games it's it's printed books it's yep. paper it's paper and staples yeah, and names like, no miniatures no other figures like it's got to be much cheaper than any other property they should give the lead investigator should get a magnifying glass <laughs> interesting fact the magnifying glass was never used as a detective tool until Sherlock Holmes. Fascinating. Yeah, so that was the first time it appeared as a detective tool. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was brilliant. <laughs> for my part, I thought this game was a lot of fun, and it's a great option for many non-traditional gamers. Mm-hmm. Like anyone, stories connect us, as they said in the infinitely impressive final episode of Game of Thrones. It's the stories that connect to people and bring us together. <laughs> So how many, so we played it with three players twice. How many players, it says up to eight people could total play it. What do you guys think would be the max that would actually make it interesting to play? Well, let's like that first, that first scenario, if eight people are playing and we're trying to beat Sherlock, two people don't get a chance to do anything. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, granted, I don't think you solve any of that stuff in six steps, but. Yeah. I mean, infinite. Ultimately, you could have an infinite number of people playing this game. I think the bigger your group gets, the more you're going to devolve into side conversations and not paying attention. And um, there'd be some degradation there. I don't. I don't know what that sweet spot would be. Yeah. It's great with three of us. I think four is easily manageable. I think. I guess I'd hesitate going above four. I'd say four to five. I would think. 
but so yeah. Casey's in. Who's the last person on the bubble? Well, I guess yeah. I mean, the more people you add in, <laughs> the more people are going to start debating where to go and what to see and who to talk to. And so, yeah, three's great. I think four might maybe be the max. Yeah. Burns, you have on occasion played some games single player. I know it's not your favorite way to experience board games. Is this something you dive into on your own? Maybe. Um, I mean, I'd play PS5. I would play video games in a heartbeat before I played this game alone. Yeah. I, I would. I think it's much more fun to play with other people. Yeah. Uh, I, I get that there's like a puzzle aspect to it where you're trying to figure it all out. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more fun bouncing the ideas off of people. So I don't think I would play this solo, but you easily could because it, it, it's like True. a choose-your-own-adventure novel. Yeah. So you just choose where you want to go next and you go there, and then you choose where you want to go next and you can go there. So you don't need other people in order to play this game. I think you could enjoy it yeah. if you didn't have other people. But I think the the community aspect of it, I think, is what makes the game much more interesting to me. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. It's a lot of fun. It's a great option for non-traditional gamers. You probably won't win, but it's a fun mental exercise, and it's a fun like conversational thing. It's the, one of the most like social games that I can. I think guess of. if you don't fully want to dwell into a dinner party mystery thing, you know, because sometimes people just it's a lot of work and trying to pull together, and people get uncomfortable being in yeah. a character mm-hmm. where this is something that can be for someone to do you know just whip this game out with a dinner party to have similar but not yeah. quite the same experience but similar. one other thing i found uh, after the fact with this game is that there's also an app that has it where it will it will do the it will read the it will read actually the words for you if you tell it to go to a specific place. Oh, really? So if you don't want to do all the reading, I did look at it and it's got like the app has 1.5 stars. So people maybe don't like it <laughs> as much. Oh, really? But, um, <laughs> that's, but that's another thing if, because I know the reading, some of them are like lengthy things to read through. Um, so I can see that that could be a little difficult um, <laughs> for some folks if they don't want to read all of that um, to have that as an option. Well, that's going to do it for our 50th episode. What a milestone. 50th episode. Sherlock Holmes, my wife's favorite character in the world. Maybe. 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 <laughs> Next month, Joey and John will be here to discuss Ratchet and Clank. We'll break down the remaster of the original title, the much maligned movie, and the newest title, Ratchet and Clank, A Rift Apart. Thank you for listening. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Joey at HobbyBoxBurns and twitch.tv slash HobbyBoxBurns and for the incomparable Phoenix at PhoenixSidlogicOIO on Instagram, I'm Tom Sidlogic at TomSidlogicOIO on Instagram and Twitter. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids. Lindsay, did you enjoy the core investigator burn? <laughs> Burns play. <laughs> 50 episodes, yay! Yeah. <laughs>